hundred years. When will she come and set us free? Set us free. Set us free. Okay, well, that sounded more awkward than I thought it would at the end. Hey, everybody, this hey, is everyone. Amanda. <laughs> um, this is Amanda, and I'm here with Dan, and this is another hey. episode of the Made for TV Mayhem show. We are sadly without our third uh, party tonight, uh. Nate, because he has a job that requires him to work, which is stupid. <laughs> and um, he's, oh, he, yeah, he's putting in some extra hours tonight. Mm. So um, he gave us his blessing to go ahead without him. And I'm a little sad about that, but I'm also really excited to be here because we are talking about two movies that I have been in love with for a very long time. One in particular I probably loved my entire life, um, and that's Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and a movie called Crawl Space from 1972. Um, so the way our show works, and we haven't really gotten into the way our general uh, – Oh, that's right. Yeah, this yeah. is the first official. Yeah, the way – and actually next week we're doing another very special episode, and then we'll probably go back to how we want <laughs> it to work. We'll so yeah, so what we're doing, if you haven't caught the first two shows and heard about it, is um, we're doing double features. We're taking a, a movie. We're pretty sure that most people who watch TV movies, classic TV movies in particular, or even more in particular, are familiar with, like Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. And then we're picking themes or actors or other similarities to the second film. And so this week we chose a movie called Crawl Space because both films were directed by John Newland, who turned out to be a really fascinating man. Now, this is somebody whose name I saw from time to time, all the time, of course, because I don't be afraid of the dark. I was familiar with him, but I did not realize that um, he had been such a huge part of my life growing up, but not just as a director, but he was also the host and directed every episode of One Step Beyond. One Step Beyond, yeah. Yeah, it was just fantastic. Right. So he yes. was this really kind of debonair um thin, always in a suit, kind of sophisticated. And that's not how I picture directors at all. You know, I picture that's, like, that's how that's how I like to picture myself. But yeah. um <laughs> Well, that's how I picture you, Oh, thank you very much. Very kind. But, like, I, I, you know, you picture, like, the Brian De Palma or, like, uh, the Spielberg, the beard, you know, and and glasses and, like, kind of, like, like, almost hippie-like, I guess, in a way, is kind of how I picture directors. Because they're so busy, they don't even shave, you know what I mean? Like Peter Jackson or something. So, when I found out that John Newland was the same John Newland that I had been watching all my life on One Step Beyond, um, that show when I was a kid, was like the greatest thing ever. I loved it. I probably watched it more than I watched The Twilight Zone because I tend to remember it more. And so yesterday, to prepare myself for the podcast, I actually watched an episode. It was the fourth episode ever of the series with Cloris Leachman um, as a photographer who goes to France to take pictures of the French citizens. And she, this weird guy shows up at this place she's rented and nobody can figure out where he comes from. And he turns out to be a really, really creepy, creepy guy. And it was fantastic. And John Newland was there to bookend it, if you remember One Step Beyond. He was, the, I guess, Sterling before Sterling, really. And um, so I don't know if there's anything else we need to do before we jump into this. Do you think, Dan, should we just jump into it? One. So, yeah, I had no idea that it was the same John Newland, and it turns out he's had a really, really interesting life. So um, I didn't write down his stats, so I can't tell you when he was born or when he died, but I did get a little bit about his uh, life, and I just wanted to discuss it for a minute. Sure. Um, 
So he started his career as a vaudeville performer, and he was part of a group called the Vikings, and they did song and dance numbers. He um, he made some movies uh, in small parts. They didn't work so well for him, so he kind of moved over to television, and he worked heavy heavily on all the um, anthology series of the time. He was also the host of Alcoa Presents, um, oh, wow. and there was there was a bunch of other stuff he did. He worked on like every anthology show in like I guess the fifties, and. Um, and then he went on to do One Step Beyond, which is where we all recognize him. Um, he then went on to produce several television movies that he did not direct. He had two production companies. One was called Factor Newland, um, the Factor Newland Production Company, which um, produced a movie that I, I made. I listed here because I thought it was worth mentioning. It's called The Five of Me with David Burney. And it's a really great, it's sort of like the male Sybil. It was okay. a true story about a guy who had a, several different personalities. And he, uh, years after the fact, when he finally got some therapy and help in the 70s, he told a story and they made it into this amazing movie with David Burney that is streaming on Amazon Prime for free or Amazon is a video with if you have a Prime account. And um, it's fantastic. I wrote a review of it on my blog. He also produced a, a, a Sensitive Passionate Man with David Jansen, which I believe is about alcoholism. And then when his partner died, he made a new company called the Raynor Newland uh, Production Company. And then they produced that movie Time Stalkers, which you might remember with Klaus Kinski and Lauren Hutton. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, which was written by Brian Clemens. He produced that. Mm -hmm. He also has the distinguished honor of directing an episode of The Man from Uncle called The Double Affair, which was uh, aired. And then they added extra footage to it. And then they actually released it as a theatrical film called oh, The Spy yes. With My Face. And then, I'm sorry, I have a very stuffed up nose. I'm sorry, guys. No, that's that's my stuffed up yeah. nose. I apologize. And then and at the towards the end of his life, I think he died around 2002, maybe a little before. In his later years, he actually ended up teaching acting at the University of New Mexico in Taos. And then he actually taught in Indonesia. He, I think he taught them film production. Wow. So he had a really varied career, a really interesting career. I think a lot of people see his name and things and don't connect him to uh, – uh, one Step Beyond, mm -hmm. or they see him in One Step Beyond and they don't connect him to Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really glad we're talking about his movies tonight because he's a kind of an amazing director, very underrated, and he directed one of the classics, which I know you're going to get into. So do you want to go for it? Oh, well, let me, I actually have um, a trailer for the movie. Let's, yes, please. Let's listen to it. Kim Darby has inherited this house from her grandmother. But the house has some secrets. What's this? It's uh, for cleaning out the ashes. It's been bolted shut. By me. And that's the way it should stay. I think we have visitors. Visitors? Mice. I thought I saw something in the kitchen. It was something like this. Little ferocious animal grabbed at my dress. We want you, Sammy. We want you. We want you. We want you. We want you. Don't be afraid of the dark. I would, before you go into your breakdown, I, I would also like mm -hmm. to mention that John Newland worked with some really impressive composers. Uh, this one, this uh, was Billy Goldenberg who also did The Legend of Lizzie Borden and a bunch of other iconic uh, movies for television. And it's a really beautiful score. So I just wanted to mention that. And uh, what, what we're going to do now is we're going to go 
to what uh October tenth, nineteen seventy-three. Uh the Farnums. Sally and Alex. Sally is played by Kim Darby, Alex is played by Jim Hutton. They've moved into basically um Sally's sort of ancestral home, as it were, her grandparents' home, which is um I, I'm actually not 100% sure where it is, but it's outside of the city. I thought it was sort of New Englandy myself. Uh, it was sure. shot in California. Okay, so it's outside of it's Los a, Angeles. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's actually a really famous mansion called the Pyro Mansion. Okay. Um, and it's it's they shot a, a bunch of horror movies there, uh, including Tarantulas, The Deadly Cargo, and Terror oh, at the Red Wolf Inn. Okay. Um, I think it might have been called the Newhall Mansion at some point, and it actually was burnt down in 1981, but was reduplicated afterwards. So it's basically the Farnums have, have Farnums have moved into this uh, beautiful house, uh, which needs a lot of work to it, yes, including a lot of great early 70s decorating. Yes. Um, God, yes. <laughs> um, and ba- basically, um, uh, Alex is is kind of a, a up and coming lawyer in a, in a big law firm. Um, and, uh, Sally has sort of, Alex wants to live in the city, but Sally has sort of kind of asserted herself a bit and insisted that they live, uh, in this family house, which is a beautiful house. And I, I live there. Um, but the, the movie begins, well, the movie begins with, a, a um, uh, a black cat. Yeah, <laughs> looking at the camera and then getting a little feisty, and then we never see the black cat again. Oh, so feisty cat! So um, can I tell you? Just uh, I'm probably going to interject a little bit while you talk about this because this was one of the first TV movies I ever saw, yes. and um, I remember being very little, maybe four or five, and seeing that cat and the credit, and I actually changed the channel because I was so scared. <laughs> it's a it's a great cat. I mean, if it you, is. Um. Uh. And then the movie begins with shots of the house, and you hear the ominous voices that we heard whispered. Yes, a little at the beginning of the the episode here. Um, will she come? She will come. Da da da. That kind of thing. And then, oddly enough, the first scene with the the um, I keep it is the Farnums. I don't know why I thought it was the Farhams. It's the uh, the the first scene with the Farnums actually involves them getting voiceover too. Yes. Oh, that's and interesting. It's, and it's it's Sally and Alex discussing fixing up the house. And then we go inside the house and Sally's there. And I, I won't go too crazy. I'm sure the majority of you who uh, are listening to this have, have seen the movie. But um, it's basically there is a – it's sort of a, a study, a sort of not quite a cellar sort of study, but it's like – if you're on the ground floor of the house, there's like one sort of step down into like a room and the room is, is locked and you can't get in. Sally finds the key. She goes in and it's a beautiful room. It's a little musty. It's a little damp. It's also really but dark. It's very dark. I, I, it does, does, um, does the decorator try to turn on a light at one point? I forget. I can't remember. I just keep thinking this is the room you want to do all your business in. It's a little, yeah, it's a little dark and there, there's sort of, there's no connection to the outside. It really is. It's like in an enormous mansion, it's sort of an enclosed room within the base of the mansion. Yes. And there's a fireplace that is blocked off. And, um, in fact, um, one, one of the, uh, 
the actors in the movie is uh, William Demarest, who was Correct. Uncle Charlie in My Three Sons, and he actually uh, comes down and talks to her about it at one point. Oh, that's the wrong clip. It won't work. <laughs> Sorry, miss. I didn't mean to make you jump. It's all right. Well, why won't it work? I mean, surely all it needs is to be smashed open. Those bricks are cemented four deep and reinforced with iron bars. There's no way of opening it up. Now, whose idea was that? Your grandmother had me do that 20 years ago. Why? It was after... After what? I just can't open it up. Now, Mr. Harris, surely you're not afraid of a little hard work. Hmm? It's not the work. It's just that some things are better left as they are, especially that fireplace. Yeah. You know... You you know that Fred McMurray would never have put up with that crap. <laughs> you know what, though? He's right. He's he, in right. the end, he's right. I mean, he, in the he's, end, he's right. He's right about everything. And it's just like, but his, his delivery is so, he's so frustrated. And it's just, it really sounds like when she's like, are you really af- just afraid of a little hard work? It kind of sounds that way. Like the delivery is really perfect. It's yes. just like excuses is what it sounds like. It's, yeah. It's if he would have, uh, and, and this isn't, probably spoiling it for anyone here, but a little later on, he he gives the full skinny to uh, Alex, uh, who I'm probably going to call Jim for Jim Hutton as sure. I talk about it. But um, And it's just like all, all you sort of think is if you had just told her, hey, here's what happened, she may have said, oh, okay, I won't try, <laughs> try to break in. Now, the, have, the movie would have been 15 minutes long. But how do you communicate that? Uh, yeah, especially at that point when you've got because one one of the things about the house is there's so much to do, and um, Alex has a big like partners party that he has to throw for the law firm, and it's coming up, and there's sort of like it's kind of until it ha- it happens about halfway through the movie, and it's sort of an inevitable thing that kind of rolls towards them, you know, so it's sort of like. She sees the fireplace and she wants the fireplace to be open. She wants that room to be a lovely room. Um, and 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 it's it's sort of like if, if there had been more time, if there hadn't been such a, a push to like make the house as done as quickly as they, they have to get it done for this big, big party, which is really important to Alex's career, maybe she would have sat down and said, okay, Uncle Charlie, which is not his name. Give me a second. William it's Harris. Oh, Harris. I, could, Harris. I, I always just call him William Demarest. I mean, Harris the handyman. He has no name to me in this movie. He's just the great William Demarest. He, um, uh, but it's so, – so what happens basically she can't get through the fireplace but there's – I believe it's an ash pit, A-S-H as in ash like evil dead ash pit, <laughs> that she is able to open up. I do. I will say though that if this party is coming and the house really needs to be set up, can't you just leave that room locked? I, I yeah, part of it is to, to me, part of it is that um, I and this may be going too far into it for the initial plot breakdown. But part of it is I think she's really um, since Alex is such a kind of like go, go, go lawyer kind of guy. And she's trying to put her sort of stamp on their world 
And so I think to me, to me, when I watched it, it was like, well, of course you're, you're going to, you know, it's like, this is, a, I, I, I hate the term man cave, but you can have a woman cave too, right? Can't you? Can this yeah, be? Yeah, but it doesn't rhyme. It doesn't what, rhyme. There's you, the. What, what rhyme are you discussing? Uh, well, I guess man cave doesn't rhyme either. Why did I think that rhymed? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I was going to say it's funny because cave and poetry ties in with our second feature. So oh, I thought so. you were. Oh, of... wow. Yeah, no. But, I'm sorry. Uh, First of all, I'm sorry. You know what? Last week I, I could say I had a cold. Last time we did this. This time it's just allergies. But that al- was really well, stupid. No, Why did I think man and cave rhymed? I will. I will. I get bad allergies sometimes too. So I know that there is a an allergy point where um, you do feel a little lightheaded at times. So uh, uh, if Amanda sounds a little lightheaded... <laughs> No, well, but what that that was my thing with the room is that I I really think, you know, you have she has this house and I really I really felt like you know I felt like this too in places like she wants to put her stamp on it, but she has it. this room that she is like this is going to be the room this is going to be like I don't she doesn't say this but it's sort of like I want to make this room a special place. But it has to. Well, have she does. Fire. Yeah, she talks about wanting to have like a fire yeah. and a place to. So she has a definite idea of what she wants for the. Yes. I don't know if we're spending too much time in this room, but, but like, we, I, well, I, I mean, it's an important room at the end. Of it. it is. So, so, uh, and I, I will, um, I will shoot, shoot forward slightly. So she does, um, uh, she is able to open up the ash pit, which is. At which she looks into it and it's like she's looking down an elevator shaft. Yes. It like seems to drop like like Bruce Willis didn't fall this far and like die hard when he was in the elevator <laughs> shaft. It's crazy how deep yes. this thing is. Well. The problem is there are little demons inside the ash pit and that, they get out. That's a bad thing. And the, and and here's where it begins to happen is that um uh she begins to hear things she begins to see things. Uh, her husband is semi-receptive-ish. Yeah. And then she actually has a good chat. Um, what what is her what is her friend's name? Well, I know uh, the actress's name. I don't remember the character now. Joan is it yeah. Joan? Yeah, it's Barbara it's Anderson. Joan. She has a good chat with her friend Joan about it, and it's very um, it's a good chat. Alex is at a stage in his life where all he thinks about is his job and getting ahead. What really scares me is that it may not be a stage. Maybe it's permanent. You think so? I don't know. It's just the, uh, the possibility of a partnership that's terribly important to him. That's all he thinks about. Well, isn't that understandable? It's just most of the time I feel like a reasonable adjunct to his getting ahead. Join the club. What is happening? Forget who I'm married to. George Kahn. Better known in the plastics business as Genghis Kahn. You're kidding, George? Dear old quiet George. I'm afraid I know rather well what it's like to be left by yourself to brood. Also, I'm... Very good at making emotional mountains out of imaginary molehills. Then you think last night was imaginary? You want me to be honest? Yes, go ahead. I think that's exactly what it was. 
So I, I think this is a pivotal scene. If we could just talk about it for a second. Of course. Um, you know, the, so I saw this movie as a kid several times and I didn't see it for years because I just didn't know where to access it. And then I got a copy on VHS probably around 2002 and I watched it with my friend and we watched this scene and it seemed so clunky to me at the time. And I thought, God, this movie is so just basic and minimal and there's nothing wrong with that. But at the time it seemed a little different than when I was a kid. But then when I started to rewatch the movie, when the remake was announced, I kind of started revisiting it a little more. And this scene is really important, and I'm really glad it's in the film because a lot of this movie now, it's hard for me to watch this movie and remember it exactly the way I saw it when I was five mm -hmm. because I'm an older woman now and I have more experience behind me. And now I just, I read this film as sort of like, almost like a metaphor for like the housewife at the end of that sort of era where yeah, women yes. were starting to do things with their lives. And you've got these two women kind of struggling. But the thing is, is that her friend Joan is sort of feeding into that female hysteria thing, mm -hmm. you know, where like I'm hearing sounds because I'm alone all the time because my husband is the breadwinner and that's just what it is. And what I think is really interesting and maybe I'm reaching and maybe I'm off topic, but uh, and I know you saw this movie. Uh, she cried murder with Linda Day George. And Telly oh Savalas. yes, with Telly Savas. Oh, that's a great yeah. That's... Well, they're similar films in a lot of ways because that movie starts off where she is the hysterical widow. Do you remember yeah. that? Yes. And she sees that thing and she tells the police, and and then they write it off as like the woman who just lost her husband, and and then she has to spend the rest of the movie on her own. Uh, fleeing this terrifying killer played by Telly Savalas because, because no one except one cop will believe her. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of ways, uh, I saw this as kind of like a bookend in a way or a counterpart to um, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. I see them as similar films because they're sort of talking – they're sort of addressing that female hysteria. Although I think in She Cried Murder, because it's not a supernatural element, it's mm -hmm. easier to – like be triumphant at the end, right? To say it's not yes, female when, hysteria. Yeah. Here, when yeah, when Telly Savalas is after you and wants to kill you, there's yeah, that's very some, real. A little more basis in in the everyday. Yeah. So, so, but in this movie, because it's a supernatural, I can't really tell how I feel about it. But uh, other people have I, done this sort of yeah. feminist reading of it, and I try really hard not to because I think it's just as a as a very minimal 74 minute brisk little monster movie. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of perfect, but yes. um, sometimes I want to analyze it. And no, I, I, I agree completely because it does keep throwing in those little moments where she says, Oh, I'm just, you know me, I, I'm a woman. I I'm curious and stuff like that. And it's like, huh? Okay. Yes. You know, does the, I, I wonder, do the, did that need to be in there or surely, you know, that must've, well, We'll talk a little bit about production at the end of this. And, okay. And it might kind of influence our decisions on things. Okay. okay. Shall I continue? Yeah, with, please. I'm sorry. Where was I, just, I? I was. Um, oh, they they were talking about their. They have. They they're going to spend their some of their husband's money. Yeah. And that's the way Let's that scene. Do is. it. Let's do, do it. it. Do it. They, it's like they're like uh you know Wilma and Betty on the Flintstones going out charge it. You deserve it, Sally and Joan. <laughs> and so and they um. Uh, there are several other – there are these strange little weird creatures, tiny creatures, and they – there's a point where they – there's a point where they don't know her name and then they learn her name 
And then when they learn her name, that seems to make them stronger somehow. I might actually have a clip of them saying her name. Let me play this and hopefully it's there. I'm right here. Okay. That's really creepy. Yeah, that is. That's got to be some kind of mystical thing that once they once they know her name, they are able to uh, get set free and run around the house. And there's sort of um, uh, there. Yeah, there are these little things, sort of a variation on like the um, the the crazy little um, invaders from the Agnes Moorhead Twilight Zone episode. The really oh, tiny yes. aliens, sort of these little things that running around, and they they keep appearing and sort of scaring her and trying to sort of claim her for their own. Um, but there are other, you know, Jim Hutton is there, you know, and, and then they have this, the big party and of course the party doesn't end well. And she's a very good host. They, there's a very lovely scene with Jim Hutton and her where they're discussing how, you know, she says, you married me only because I'm a great hostess and that kind of thing. And, and you really, because I'm a big Jim Hutton fan, you really kind of feel, I, I, I sit there and I think, no, he didn't marry you because of that. That's not right, but I actually can't completely tell whether or not he married her because they, of that. It's a little they go back and forth on how he yeah his emotions, and, which is you know what I mean. Isn't every marriage like that? Yeah, exactly. It's not exactly. all one way, right? Yeah, and um, uh, and yeah, there's a big party. Unfortunately, one of these little creeps shows up during the party, and the party ends with her screaming a lot. Yeah, but it's uh, so cute. We gotta talk about like so she's sitting at the table <laughs> yes. and she's eating, she's having her dinner conversation with like I don't know how many people are there, and this little monster comes over to her side and he's tugging at the napkin on her lap. <laughs> and I think she sees him. I think it drops to the ground and someone helps her pick it up and she sort of is like, Oh, I saw something, but just whatever. And then um and then I think it does it again, and then she flips. She flips out, flips. yep. And, flips. And, and she's calling out her husband's name. Alex, yes. Alex, Alex, right? And she's like, mm -hmm. Alex, make it go yeah. away. And it's yeah. like, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty nerve wracking. Yeah, it is. And then she, she goes and she takes a nice shower and the party's over <laughs> no. and Alex is a little mad. But unfortunately, the little guys show up again while she's in the shower and they have a straight razor. And there's some really, <laughs> there's some really wonderful, like, they're tiny. There's some really wonderful, like, big sets. Yes. That really, like, they fit in too nicely. Like when they pick up the straight razor, it's like their size of, it's like a scythe, but yeah. <laughs> almost bigger. And it's, it's really great. And I will say something happens then because she sees them with the razor outside the shower. And at that point, forgive me if I'm wrong. I, I believe this is the point. He, he is going away for a few days for the, for the firm. Yes. But, and she says, I think we should leave. So when you come back, I I think we should we should leave here. Yes. Which yeah, there's, there's, she's like, I just need to I just need to go a few more days. Yes, and and so it's sort of like as we draw towards the conclusion, we try to we're learning, sort of there two it's they they parallel it where um Jim Hutton's character goes to talk with Uncle Charlie about what exactly is going on, and they actually have a scene. Uh, Jim Hutton yells at Uncle Charlie at one point on the phone because the key to that study disappears. And it's awesome because 
the the little guys get it by doing that thing where you um slide paper under the door <laughs> and then push the key out. That's so awesome. I love that. I love that they did that. But there's um there's a scene a little later where Uncle Charlie comes to pick up his tools because he's kind of been fired, and they sort <laughs> of, of they, they they sort of have a little chat by the pool. Hey, could I buy a cup of coffee? Maybe a quick one, man. Good. Ferris, I was wondering if you'd reconsider. By that, I mean coming back here to work. There's still are some things I'd like to get done. I don't think it'd be a good idea, Mr. Farnham. Why? What? Because we had a beat? No, no, that's all over with and forgotten. Then what? Sir? I have my way of looking at things, and you and your wife have yours. And it's like I said before. I think there are some things that shouldn't be taken lightly. About this house? Why don't we stop all that nonsense? I don't call it nonsense. All right, superstition. And I don't call it superstition Well, then what do you call it? I don't have a name for it, but I wouldn't call it either one of those things. Mr. Harris, I don't want to get in another beep. And I don't mean to offend you, But I don't happen to believe in all that stuff. I know you don't. But it might be better for you and Mrs. Farnham if you did. Well, I got no beef with you. No, no beef at all. I got no, no beef. beef with you. He says that twice. <laughs> and I love that. Like, who says that? Yeah, this it's pure Hutton. <laughs> pure and that and so and and the movie sort of drives towards its climax as um uh uh Sally is in the house kind of well I there's a murder. The there's. I'm, I don't know if I've given too much away. I I think you've all probably oh, seen right. it. Yeah, I think it's okay. I mean, okay. So let's let's just point out that this movie turned forty two like two days ago. So wow. If you haven't seen it by now. Wow. Yes. Okay. So I'm. I feel free to spoil. They stri- the little guys string up a rope on the um on the staircase, and the decorator who's very angry because he can't like. I don't know, like mixes maroon with his lime green or whatever it is he's trying to do. He 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 trips on the rope, falls down the stairs, and is killed. Um, and but Sally gets um, rope burns on her hands from trying to pull That's the rope right. from the little guys. It's like the and only clue she has. That it's it's the clue, and it is actually a clue that everyone believes, which yes. is nice. Because when she shows them the rope burns, they're like, where the heck did you get that? She's like, that's from the little guys. And so it draws towards the conclusion with um, Jim Hutton and Uncle Charlie kind of – Uncle Charlie basically explaining what has happened in the house. Why? Yeah, thanks for waiting, Uncle Charlie. Yeah, yeah thanks for waiting until the uh, yeah the 70-minute mark on our 74-minute <laughs> long movie. Um uh, and he explains what happened in the house that caused the fireplace to be boarded up. While meanwhile, Sally is having her final confrontation with the little guys. Um, and that, that's the end of my breakdown. From this point on, everything can get spoiled. So if you yeah. if you cool. haven't seen it by now, where have you been all your life? But you should – we're going to do it. We're I gonna, think, here we yeah, go. I think the ending is really important to yes. discuss because um, like – that movie blows your mind when you're at the right age because no movies end like that, right? Yes. Everybody is supposed to get saved by the end and they're supposed to be like – then they go off together with their loved ones and everything's wonderful and mm. you just don't get that ending. And it like – it's really dark 
It's yes. really dark and it's really effective and um, it's haunting. And it's something that stuck with me as a kid for, for a long time. It still sticks with me when I think about it, like in those terms. I mean, even now watching it, you're just like, wow, all of that. Really? Yeah, really. Wow. Yeah. It's, and there's something too, when I went back and when I watched it a few days ago for the first time in about two or three years and then went back and watched it again and realizing, and here's some spoilery stuff, but, um, you know, that one of the things that uncle Charlie tells, uh, Jim Hutton is that the, the reason why I was bricked up is because the grandfather disappeared. Oh, I forgot that part. The grandfather disappeared. That's why the grandmother. And so if you go back and listen to the opening, of the movie with the monsters talking, you hear all the little voices and I don't mean to put down the monsters for being little, but they are tiny. Um, <laughs> you, you hear all the, the, the monsters voices and then you hear one on top of it saying, she will come. She will. Come. And, oh. and, then, and then in the end, when there's, they do the same thing. Uh, I forget exactly. Like, will they come? Will they come? And you hear Sally's voice say yes. they will come there. And you realize it's like, so did grandpa just like trade? like his granddaughter's soul for his own so he could get out of there or something. And there, Ooh. there is, there is one of the little guys when they're running around in the bathroom, grabbing the straight razor, there are two of them on the ground and one of them kind of looking very sternly down. And I thought, is that grandpa? Like, it's almost like a phantasm sort of thing, you know, where oh they took God. the people and crunched them down into dwarfs. You know, it's almost like, is this sort of that kind of thing? Is that another dimension where they, yeah. I need a mind blown sound bite. <laughs> Do we have because one? Because I never can. No, I never connected. The closest I have is this. <laughs> That's the best oh, I can Bubba. give you happy, right now. Happy Halloween, Bubba. <laughs> happy Halloween. But uh, I never actually associated the grandfather with it. You know, here I am. Oh, it's a feminist. Blah blah blah. blah. And you actually caught the total point of the film. Well, no, I th I think I think the thing about about the film is is it is it is a familial thing, but there is a feminist thing going on there that uh, it's like crawl space has a thing in it that I don't fully understand either, you know that doesn't quite come out. So it's like with she, I don't. Well, here's the thing with with Kim Darby is that I have trouble with her haircut. Yeah, a lot I of people think she do. should get a new haircut, and I know that's bringing it superficial after what we've been well, discussing. Well, she's actually super cute, and I have to say, in this she, movie, she is. She I don't is. know if they're trying to make her dowdier because, like, she a couple years after this, she was on a really great episode of Love Boat, where it's like the disco Love Boat episode, and what? she's like the party girl at the Julie's High School reunion, mm -hmm. and she's super sexy in it. And I don't think I appreciated Kim Darby as an actress till I was older because I mostly associate her with this movie. And maybe Halloween Six, right? Oh yes, and she she is also in the, is it Sinun Zeit, the first part of the X Files two parter? Yes, yes, she is in that. That's right. But by then she's older. Discovering Samantha, sure, yeah. And I'm already thinking of her in those terms. But she's also in, um, oh my God, it just left my brain. She's in the San Francisco San Francisco pilot. Okay, and she was in like Marcus Welby or something. She's like that? in a lot of stuff, yeah. yeah. And but in this, in the streets of San Francisco, she's like an ingenue kind of like this really pretty, flighty kind of young girl. And I, I hadn't really associated her with those kind of characters, even though I watched Streets of San Francisco as a kid. But I guess I never recognized her as that same character. But I think that they were trying to make her plainer. I think that was 
Because the wardrobe is definitely not attractive. Definitely, yes. I mean, and there's something with that haircut where it's almost like she's almost got kind of like chubby cheeks or something like that. Yeah. Oh, it's it's it, a little strange. It's I interesting. I, I think she's trying to embody the full housewife kind of. Mm -hmm. Like this is totally random. But one day, I think it was a Trapper John or something. I was watching. Like, Tell TV, me more. I was watching a TV show like that. And there was like they were at the zoo, like Gonzo or somebody and his date. Uh -huh. And his date is wearing like skin tight Sergio Valentes and like a low cut sweater. And there's a mother there with her kid. And the mother's wearing this uh, khaki colored uh, skirt that goes below her knees and like a t shirt. Uh huh. And it's like, really? Did women really dress like that? Like you had a baby and then you had to like start yes. wearing horrible outfits? <laughs> and and then the, the single young, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it was like, so I think that they were like visually trying to capture yeah, what the housewife looked like in yeah, that and it's, era. Yeah, it's, and it's because her friend dresses more or less sort of like that too. Her friend isn't Yeah, too but she far. works it. W-E-R-K. She well, works she, it. But well, I have I, to say, Barbara Anderson, holy moly, she is <laughs> divine. <laughs> well, I think, I, I always, um, uh, we, we had this discussion once before on another podcast, but it's my, um, my uh my thing about mini skirts. Oh right right right. And I think the funny thing about uh, I've always said that it's like it's like the spring or summer of seventy three is when all women's skirts dropped from like high on the thigh to right around the knee. And this is a perfect example of that. Came out in October seventy three, right. and all the skirts are right around the knee. If this had been six months before, a year before, the skirts would have been much higher. Yeah, I, would... I don't know. I don't know that that proves anything. Possibly I'm a perv, and I apologize to everyone. <laughs> but that's like the one fashion thing I've noted in my well, life. Well, I really like knee-length skirts. I mean, that's what I tend to wear. But um, I think Barbara Anderson is like the sexier version of the housewife. I mean – she Yeah. She, she's the one who, when the skirts dropped, she kept it nice. Yeah. Whereas, she, whereas a lot of the other housewives, I guess they probably just like, oh, now we're wearing them here? Okay. And so, yeah, maybe. She seemed a little more fashion forward, I guess, than Kim Darby. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the ending is something um, yes. to talk about. Here's just a few tidbits about the movie. Uh, so, like you said, it ran on October 10th, 1973. It was a legitimate ABC movie of the week. Um, it ran against the NBC mystery movie, which was an episode of Tenafly, and I think it was actually the oh. first episode of Tenafly. Okay. There was a pilot movie that aired earlier in the year, and then this was, like, the first episode. Okay. Um, and then Sonny and Cher and Cannon were on CBS. Mm. Uh don't Be Afraid of the Dark was released in some European countries under the AKA Nightmare, which must have made it a bitch to find. Oh, yes. It's just like the most generic title ever. Yeah. And this movie is, is uh, distinguished in a lot of ways in that it had two home video releases, meaning it came out on VHS and DVD. And mm. a lot of TV movies either get one or the other if they get any. So this has both. This was written by Nigel McKean, who I didn't realize was one of the main producers on the TV show Family with Kristen McNichol. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, he also produced Norma Ray, but Don't Be Afraid of the Dark was one of his first writing credits. Um, and so here's a little bit about the production. So there are varying tales about this, but uh, apparently Don't Be Afraid of the Dark was a real fast job. Um, I've read that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was a writer's strike. And I think where the gray lines are is that I've read that he wrote the script in two weeks. Other people say it was written and produced in two weeks, which seems ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, so... I think that when I do feminist readings, though, I mean, it was definitely like he put it in the typewriter and he was like, T -t 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 
it was here. it was almost yeah it's almost uh, unconscious probably yeah so stuff he was writing yeah so i don't know that there was anything intentional like when i look at it i have to remind myself a lot of it was probably just came out because the era was there and it was like you said it's subconscious so he was just sort of dictated by the culture which i'm fascinated by when yeah well, it's, it's, it is fascinating yeah um, and so here's just some stuff I got off IMDb, so you can take it as you want to take it. The idea of the creatures coming out of the ash clean-out pit came from the Spanish house that Nigel McKean was living in at the time. It had an old fireplace at the rear with a deep clean-cut pit bolted at the rear. It was so deep, creepy, and dark, nobody ever wanted the job of cleaning it out. So apparently that was like his inspiration yeah. for it. Um, the total time of filming, okay, here's where we get to the production, including script approval by Laura Mark, casting, special effects, voiceover, and exterior shots were all completed in slightly over two weeks. One of the quickest made-for-television movies ever made. This was due mainly to a writer's strike. Now, that just seems like a lot. Especially oh, I guess with... it says script approval, so I guess that maybe isn't so bad. Because I, I was going to say, it's, it's, it, it, it doesn't seem like a lot until you think of the fact that they would have had to build all those sets well, yeah, monsters to that's why it says that. exterior shots and voiceovers. Oh, okay, yeah, All yeah. Right. So and every and so everything else came later, I guess. Um, I don't know if anybody knows better. I would love to hear the exact story about how they made this movie because I'm fascinated by the I'm fascinated by the fast production of TV movies in general. Yes, there it's really amazing. And then my third and favorite piece of trivia, and I don't know how true this is, but I, I like to think it is. George Hamilton was up for the Jim Hutton part. <laughs> Could you imagine that? Jim Hutton and Kim Darby, take me away. They're such a couple. They're such a – George Hamilton, good gravy. I can't yeah. even imagine that. Well, huh. yeah, I can't imagine him in that role mm-hmm. to an extent because he's almost too suave. Like I can't – like yeah. like Jim Hutton's a suit, right? Like I just see him as sort of a – he's successful and he's ambitious, but mm-hmm. he's like a cog in the machine. Mm-hmm. And I see George Hamilton as like a machine. He'd be, yeah, he'd be the sitting on the throne sort of thing. Yeah, that's so. Yeah. It's harder for me to picture that, and it might just be his tan. It could be, yeah. And Jim Hutton is always so quirky. That's the the thing I love about him. Well, he he's so... super quirky, and he's also like an everyman, which is one of the things mm-hmm. I find so appealing about him. Is that I think I don't think he's as handsome as his son Timothy Hutton. Like I have a I, crush on Timothy. Yeah, but... I would. Yeah. But Jim Hutton definitely has his own flavor, and yeah. and I think part of that comes from the fact that he looks like a guy I might meet somewhere, and yeah. he does have those quirky ability, you know, uh, stylists. Uh, I don't know what I would characteristics, and it's appealing because mm-hmm. he's like a real person to me. Yeah, I think uh, I got I got a little Jim Hutton info here. If we want to, oh yeah, take a, take a trip down uh, the land of uh, his, the his land first, of Hutton, the land of Hutton, Dana. James Hutton is his name. Even better. Um, and uh, his his first big role that that I well his first big role is actually um, and I didn't write down the name of the Twilight Zone episode, but it's a Twilight Zone episode. Um, ah, crap. Uh, I'll find it out later. And then they they touch the sky or something like that. I forget. It's a it's a very good episode where basically a bunch of guys go off in an experimental rocket, come back, and then they all begin to disappear from time and space. And um, uh, it's uh, oh, and then they touch the sky. Oh gosh, that's going to bug me. Why didn't I write it down? You can what tell I'm gonna us do... on the next podcast. Okay, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to hop ahead to where the boys are from. Oh sure. And that was his first big one. And that was a big sort of. It's not. It's you know it's a. 
it's I, I guess I don't know if you can have a proto beach party movie the way you do like have proto <laughs> slasher so. films. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, we, where the boys are is a proto um, beach party movie where they all go down to Florida. I believe I saw it a couple years ago. Um, and they pick up Jim Hutton along the way, who's kind of this hippy dippy beatnicky uh, kind of guy, and they all go down there. And um, and where the boys are, unlike the actual beach party movies, which I love, the the AIP beach party movies, I get so much joy watching them. Where the boys are does that thing where about mm, two thirds of the way into it, it becomes a little unpleasant, and it becomes. Not so fun, which is too bad. But uh, it was a hit, and Jim Hutton and Paula Prentice, one of the co-stars, they put them in – the studio put them in a bunch of movies together. According to what I read, they were put together because they were the tallest. Yes, I read read that. Paula (laughs) Prentice said that. The tallest male and the tallest female contract players at that studio. And they were in films uh, The Honeymoon Machine, Bachelor in Paradise – the Horizontal Lieutenant. <laughs> See, I saw that title and I was like, that just put so many images in my head. That, yeah, I, I had about uh, six different images in my mind <laughs> for that one. And I, uh, um, and he was also in uh, – I watched this about a year ago and it's, it's not that great. Walk, Don't Run, Cary Grant's last film. Oh, I remember that. You know, Cary Grant said that he felt that Jim Hutton was destined to be have his career – I think he said it's. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's I mean, they're both, you know, I love Cary Grant. Who doesn't love Cary? Right. Um, But the the movie itself is eh, maybe, you know, stick with charade or watch the bishop's wife of his Christmas time. You know, Um, uh, then uh, he was also in the Green Berets, the very wacky. Yes. um, John Wayne film. Um, And then but then in the early 70s, he's in a very entertaining film called Psychic Killer. Oh, you know, I've never seen that. Where he goes, he yeah, he plays a guy who goes into jail, a prison, and learns how to astral project. Oh, and so sure. he sort of sits in his kitchen and astrally projects himself to the house of people he wants to kill. Sure. And it's it's really weird seeing <laughs> Jim Hutton, like, and he begins to sort of decay as the movie goes along, as the astral projection is wearing him down. And it's really, it's it's actually a great pre-Halloween 70s horror film. Sold. Yeah, and so I recommend it highly. Um, then, uh, obviously, then he was in Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Yes. Um, he was... Um, I'm, I'm going to skip my favorite thing that he was in just to get to one of the last things he was okay, in. Okay, and then I want to just throw something in there real quick before you get to okay. what I know you're getting to. The, the last thing he was in was he was in uh, the third season premiere of One Day at a Time. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I saw that on the credits and I have a vague memory of him on the show. The older man, he goes out with Julie Cooper, who is Mackenzie Phillips, I believe. And it's like a three-parter or an eight-parter or a ten-parter. Yeah, That's it's all, like a three or four-parter. All I remember about One Day at a Time is the storylines used to go on forever. And and I, it's not a favorite show of mine. Oh, um, oh it, it, it is. Uh, wait a minute. I meant, What I meant was – I'm sorry. Skype, I, Skype is – Skype is messing up right here. I meant it's a favorite show of mine. You know what? Oh, boy. Okay. I'm going to do my best not to play too many sound bites, but it was good minute. <laughs> so, yeah, I have a big recollection of that only because I saw his name and I started – because I watched that show pretty religiously as a kid, not so much as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I have a vague memory of him on the show. 
Yes. But I'd have to like actually I couldn't tell you what happened or or the fact that he dated Julie. I would assume he would date Miss Ms. Romano. You know, of course. Yeah. But um, just real quick, I want to also mention he did a movie that I feel like I should mention here, um, and I'm going to get the title wrong. <laughs> Nightmare at 53 Hellcrest. Um, it was a movie. Yes, it's an ABC um, Wide World Entertainment movie that aired late at night. I'm going to jump to uh, Merrill real quick. You talk about it. Okay, it's it, it, it won't be in there. Oh no. No, they don't do, he doesn't, I don't think he does the late night movies. Uh, there's uh, a couple in there. There's like a Dan Curtis. So we're talking about movies made for television by Alvin Merrill, which yeah. is, uh, there's a link to buy different versions of it on our website. And I'll give you the link at the end. But um, I, I actually have two editions sitting, one on my left and one on my right. Yeah, yeah. I have to say uh, it's a great resource, but I, and he does have Dan Curtis's Frankenstein in there, which I feel was a late night movie, but I can't remember but Werewolf and, of Woodstock, I don't think is. Yeah, like you're not going to be able to find those movies for some reason. I think he just counted the primetime films. So it's hard to get information on them. But I'll, I just rewatched it. I watch it every so often. Um, I'd say it's kind of middling in a lot of ways, but I really like it because I like those shot on video late night movies. But it's not one of the more suspenseful ones. But it's essentially about a family. And I can't remember who played his wife, but Marriott Hartley plays this cop oh, cool. in it. And John Karen. I can't remember his name now. Oh, he's in all these Dan Curtis movies too. And he was in dark shadows, isn't it? He plays another cop anyway. Um, so what happens is, uh, the guy who played Christy Snow's dad on three's company is sort of this dirty cop and he's doing this drug bust, but they go to the wrong house. They're supposed to go to like 53 North Hillcrest or 54 Hillcrest or something. And they end up at the wrong house mm -hmm. and they're, and so he's like, we're at the wrong house guys put drugs in the closet. So oh, wow. the cops come out and they're like, and it's a family. It's Jim Hutton, his wife, and a teenage daughter. And they come out with these bags of cocaine and they're like, you guys are under arrest. And then, of wow. course, their lives are destroyed because of this. So maybe Mary Hartley's not a cop. She might be a DA or something. And um, this other cop st starts to slowly kind of figure out that Chrissy Snow's dad is not as nice as he you would think he is and uh -huh. he's getting all these accolades for busting this family of drug dealers uh -huh. and so the whole movie is sort of it's like half about how their life is completely destroyed and the other half is about how they bust the dirty cop mm -hmm. and it's done in like on three sets maybe and um it's very much like a play and it's wow. really good okay. it's really good and um it's actually on dvd so, uh, and it did also get a VHS release. Some of those late night movies did kind of get a little bit of a home video release. That one in particular has, for some reason, spread far and wide um, out there. And so if you're really into Jim Hutton, I just wanted to throw it out there because I'm not as familiar with his theatrical work. He mm -hmm. was always the guy in Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and some other things along mm -hmm. the way. But um, I really like him in, in the Hillcrest movie, so I wanted to recommend it. I'd never heard of that one. I'm gonna check that out. And I, I, my my favorite my favorite thing that he is in, and it's a it's sort of a perennial in our house. There there are a few TV shows that my wife and I watch over and over again, um, and uh, this is one of them. In in 1975, March of 75, there was a two hour TV movie written by Levinson and Link, the guys who did Columbo. And a lot of other great shows. I Murder, call she them wrote. God. By the way. They're wonderful. Yeah, Murder yeah. She Wrote, Black's Magic, which I love, and a lot of other things. Um, they did an adaptation of an Ellery Queen novel, and uh, from in the nineteen seventy five nineteen seventy six season, there was a full season 
of Jim Hutton as Ellery Queen and David Wayne as his dad, Inspector Queen. And there are, I think, 20, 22 episodes. And the show was canceled because it was the mid-70s, inflation was high, and the show was set in the 40s. And so the show wasn't canceled for bad ratings. It's the same way that Wonder Woman was canceled after one season. And this is a bit of a tangent. I'm sorry. Wonder Woman was canceled after one season because it was in the 40s. And the producer took it to another network and said, we'll set it in the 70s. And it got picked up. They wouldn't do that with Ellery Queen. So it got canceled. That would have been funky. Yeah. Wouldn't that have been super funky to see Ellery? I would have liked that. Yeah, very much. But it's it's like if you want to see Jim Hutton at his best, I think – that that there's a lovely like six disc Ellery Queen set that you can get DVD set and it's yeah, it, one. It was on Hulu as well for a while. I don't know oh, if it well, still okay. is because I watched an episode a couple years ago with Salminio. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. My my wife and I have probably watched that series over the past like four years, maybe five times, and we just we we just adore it. And, and the great thing about it is that if there's Jim Hutton's series, that series from the mid seventies. You hop ahead, well, twenty five years to two thousand, right? And and Tim Hutton with Maury Chaikin has the Nero Wolf series that aired on yes. Annie, which is also perennial in our house. So it's sort of like I just think Jim Hutton's cool, and uh, I think Tim Hutton is cool also. So I like them both very much. Yes, yeah, so. and so I guess we should say that Jim Hutton died not too long after this movie, like in nineteen seventy nine or nineteen eighty, right? Yes, right before uh, his son won the Academy Oscar. Or, yeah, for ordinary. ordinary people. That's right. And um, he was forty five. Yeah, he's very young, um, and it was really upsetting. But uh, just a really weird urban legend in our house. My mom told me. When I was little and I was all about Timothy Hutton, I wasn't that little. I was probably like a teenager. And she said, did you know that his dad and his grandfather both died at the same age of a heart attack? And Timothy Hutton thinks he's going to die that way. Now, where did my mom get that information from? Because first of all, his grandfather, as far as I know, did not die that way. And neither did Jim Hutton. No, no. no, He Uh, died of liver failure. Yes. So he had liver cancer. Okay. okay. And, um, And so for years... I was like, God, Timothy Hunt must be terrified. And like, I thought that, like I walked around like thinking about Timothy Hutton and worried about him. Right. I still worry about him. I want him here as long as possible, obviously. But, um, I, and so like years later when the internet became a thing and you could like look up this stuff, I was like, well, my mom was already gone at this point, I guess. But I was like, I really just wish she was here just so I could call her and be like, mom, you are so wrong. You might've got this one wrong. But that was like a weird urban legend wow. we had around our house. That was weird. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, but I, he he affected all of us apparently at, at the there, Reyes house. And I, <laughs> I, I have one more uh, Jim Hutton bit, and I just learned this today. For apparently about twelve years, he was sort of semi romantically involved with Yvette Vickers. I read that. Yes. Who was not only a Playboy playmate, but she was in Attack of the Giant Leeches and Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman. He was Woman. a he was and a she, bit of a Playboy. She is um, what I would I would describe her as H O T hot. Yes. She is like wowzers. So it's like, hey, Jim, well done. You have a good time, sir. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, he. I mean, he was married twice. And I don't know that he had affairs or anything, but I feel like when I was reading about him that he was actually a pretty wild guy, like in yeah. his unmarried years. Yeah. And he was a prankster and things like that. Apparently he liked to pull pranks. And he was a fun guy. Um, 
they, and he just seemed like a, like you could like have a beer with him and hang out. Yeah, you know, yeah. They they do say on the Ellery Queen, um, uh, they interview which, whichever one of the guys is still alive. William Link. Yes, they interview him and they say that they were he uh, Jim Hunt was so into the role that some nights he would actually stay on the set. Oh night. yeah, I read that. And sort of to get into it, and it's like wow, that's and there's a great and this is I'm gonna stop right here, but there's a great. One of the one of the joys, and I can't recommend it enough. The the show, the Ellery Queen show, there the the sets for their apartment are awesome. Yes. And there's an episode where they go to Hollywood, and they're making an Ellery Queen movie, and the Ellery Queen movie uses the sets that they use to make the show that they're on. So you just get to see the sets, and you get to see the top of the sets and the side of the sets, That's so and meta. like that. It's really it's and, really cool and economical. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I think I've gone so far away from "Don't be afraid of the dark." Uh, Aren't those little guys great? They well, run speaking, around. And this is got the perfect segue. And... This is the perfect segue. So, you know, the little guys were played by little people. Although I was reading that Najum Keen did one of the voices, the writer, but one of the little people uh, was actually played by Felix Sila. Uh-huh. I'm hoping I'm saying that right. Who was Twicky on Buck Rogers, mm-hmm. and is also the little guy in She Freak. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah those, this is the yeah. same guy. The and one, yeah. um, so she freak rules when yes it does it's a great movie when don't be afraid of the dark was coming out there was some promotion for it on in newspapers and he did an interview with somebody maybe the associated press or whatever and he talked about wearing the costume and so the most difficult part for felix Silla was apparently he was really into smoking like everybody was in the 70s sure. and he couldn't smoke because they had no mouthpiece in the costume so he jerry-rigged like a straw that was long enough to go through the nose hole in the costume and down into his mouth with a little cigarette down at the very end. Wow. And that was how he survived being in the costume in the seventies when he wanted wow. a ciggy. Um, so that's my Felix Silla trivia, but I, I came across this randomly yesterday online and I wanted to share it. So apparently if you're really into Dungeons and Dragons and you are familiar with don't be afraid of the dark, some people have made this connection to a character Um I came across this through a blog called Dreams in the Lick House, L-I-C-H. I'm not not sure how to say it, Lich House. And I'm just going to quote him. And um, he feels like that the little creatures in Don't Be Afraid of the Dark directly influenced um, these creatures in Dungeons and Dragons. So here's a description of them. Here are the salient points from the Fiend Folio. Their appearance causes fear. They live in a sealed vertical shaft and only become active against adventurers when someone opens the shaft and breaks the seal. The victim brings it on him themselves. They bring a single victim to terrorize and send telepathic messages only to the victim, degrading their combat abilities and hopefully sowing some paranoia. They have a paralytic lytic touch and their ultimate goal is to drag the victim back to the shaft and turn them into another mean lock wow crazy right yeah wow that's yeah that's that's it that's wow i don't remember them at all i used to play some dungeons and dragons back in my youth well and, i think um, do they introduce new characters could this be like a new i don't oh, it know could, if- it could be I, I would think so i mean i used to play back in the 80s so i would imagine the show the show <laughs> the, did, the game is evolving did the and, did the, did the did the monsters in Dungeons and Dragons have mullets in the eighties? Yes. No, I don't remember. <laughs> I, I don't remember. Uh, hmm. I don't know. Maybe did uh, Guillermo uh, Guillermo del Toro have anything to do with Dungeons and Dragons? Did he? Uh... I don't know. That's a good question. And I'm glad you, you're so good at segues. Um, <laughs> 
I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, a few years ago, I can't remember what year it was, maybe 2010 or 11, they did a remake of Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Guillermo del Toro produced it. He did not direct it. Um, I saw it in the theater. I liked it. I did not love it. I was kind of surprised, I guess, because he had done Pan's Labyrinth a little before that. And Pan's Labyrinth, although I don't remember it as well as I should, I do remember how moving it was and how amazing it was to watch. And so when I heard he was going to be this uh, producing Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, I just had grand images in my head of what was going to happen. And I think it was kind of a letdown. And oh. I I don't think it outdoes the original at all. I thought it would with uh, his aesthetics, but um, it just didn't. It's it's kind of lacking something. And I, I don't know what it is. I mean, they changed. A, have you seen it? No, I haven't. Okay, well, they changed a lot of it. Like, so Sally's a little girl, mm-hmm. and I, because he likes children, I, I think he likes that fairy tale sort of mythos kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, Pan's Labyrinth, and um, and so it's more through a child's point of view, and maybe that works for now because I think Katie Holmes's character was a little bit more autonomous than Kim Darby, so I maybe that makes sense to me that they would put it on the kid, but it doesn't end the same. It ends the same way and it doesn't end the same way. I'm afraid to spoil that one because it's new. Um, I wouldn't say don't see it. I will tell you though. So they built this really beautiful house to film it in. And I, I remember writing about the movie and I remember saying it was a beautiful house, but on retrospect, I think it feels like a set. And that was part of the problem. Like the, that, that mansion that they shot it in, it's really grand, but it doesn't ever feel like a set. It feels like a home mm-hmm. and it just doesn't in the remake. And maybe that was part of it. And also the CGI creatures weren't like the best. They weren't horrible, uh-huh. but I'd rather take the little latex, you know, little guys, furry guys with like the large enlarged switchblades and whatever they were using straight razors. Yeah. <laughs> like I like I like that it's charming and it's quaint and, um, it it makes the film better mm-hmm. you know i think maybe technology sort of ruined it for the remake yeah i uh yeah i'm not a big remake guy so i probably won't you be know, seeing it but i'm not either but i will tell you that um tv movie remakes i tend to get behind because usually mm-hmm. the it gives the movie a video release which oh, is sure, really nice, yeah. like a home video release, yeah. number one. Number two, I think that if you're going to remake a movie, it should either be a movie that is lost, um, and maybe you're just doing that, or uh, you really have a spin to put on it. Like, it's a movie that didn't quite go as you, as expected. There's gaps uh-huh. in it or something, and, and you found out a way to sort of enhance it. Mm-hmm. Um, then, yes, remake it. Uh, I will say that the Woman in Black remake is not as good as the original, but it was quite good. Um, I did like that. In general, I, if it's a TV movie and it's even playing on TV, like I saw The Initiation of Sarah, they remade and I saw it, and um, Satan's School for Girls, which I think is quite good. It's a lot different than the original. I saw that as well. Um, so, yeah, so I was there to support it full mm-hmm. on, I, but I was slightly disappointed by it. Yeah. But it's not like the world's worst movie or anything. Okay. And wait, 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 so if you've seen the remake of Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, <laughs> you should let us know and we'll give you our contact information at the end. Yes, yes. And um, 
I, I think we could probably talk about Don't Be Afraid of the Dark for another hour, but should we talk about Crawl Space a bit? We should. I, so there's really no sound bites out there that are like a promo for it or anything. So, But I do have a couple things that might help set us back in time and get us ready for uh, what we're about to encounter. So, um, okay. Uh, here's what you might have heard on the night it aired. This is the actual intro for the CBS special presentations that aired in the 70s. Short and sweet. Nice. Short and sweet. Nice. And I don't know if they, I couldn't find a movie of the week opening. I, I found one, but the sound was really bad, and then I couldn't find it again. So, um, And then here's a little intro to um, Crawl Space. And, and it might not make sense to you when you listen to it, but it will as the, we start to discuss it. Mrs. Graves and I are very happy to have you with us, and you're welcome to stay until you find some kind of work and can stand on your own feet. Now, I know, I know that Washburn's garage is looking for someone to pump gas. That's uh, down at the crossroads, about four miles this side of the dairy. Is that clear? It's understood, right? Good. Good. Richard, may I ask why you wrote the word God on the cellar door? Well, it's been very nice chatting with you, Richard. Good night. So that is a really great scene in Crawl Space. There are actually two people in that scene. Yes. One you don't see, and then there's Arthur Kennedy talking mm -hmm. to him. And uh, Crawl Space aired on uh, February 11th, 1972. Uh, CBS, directed uh, by John Newland. Uh, it was based on a novel by Herbert Lieberman. Correct. Uh, teleplay by Ernest... Kinoy, Kinoy, uh, and it's basically it's the story of a couple, uh, Albert Graves, Alice Graves, and they've moved to, and I think the this was shot in Connecticut, I believe. So this is I I think what I was thinking of when I thought that um, Jim and Kim had moved. Well, to, it does have a very Becky's because the big house and the, the and, and they they do talk a little later about going to the city for something. So yeah, Boston, um, right? Yeah, they go to Boston, so they're they're in the the New England area, and they've left some city or other, possibly Boston, and they're living in the in the rural area. Um, uh, Albert has a bad heart, and they're sort of kind of trying to live a calm life out there. Uh, Alice has a loom, she does, which, which she's constantly making stuff on. Um, is Albert is he a writer? Is that I was a little vague. Ah, uh, you know. I'm Sure, that's a good question. I think they're retired, though, right? Possibly, yeah. I, 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 I could have sworn at one point she said to him something like, "Do you want to write? Try to try writing something today, or something like that." And I, but I could be, I could be wrong there. Um, but they're so they're in this house, and it's this lovely rural house. And um, just the movie begins. There's there's a young man with a nice ponytail who is uh, fixing <laughs> a fixing nice their, young man with beautiful hair with beautiful hair, and he's fixing their furnace. And he he um 
and he's going to uh, uh, and he's been there kind of late. And he's going to leave and the um, the wife invites him for dinner and they have an interesting conversation over dinner. Read all these most of them. What's this one? That's a book of poems by a man by the name of Blake. It's about love, fear, death, God. Would you lend it to me? <laughs> Please. you promise to bring it back? Yeah. Sure. You know, I don't believe you've told us your name. Richard. Richard? Richard. Atley. All right, Richard Atley. Now you take good care of that book. That's um, the dinner scene. It's a bit of a strange dinner, um, uh, but uh, yeah, Richard is a little—he's—he's um, he's a little alternately sort of aggressive and then sort of very curious at the same time. And yeah, he seems a, he's he, sympathetic and terrifying. Yes, he seems like—I—I um, I don't know what what I mean like to in order to fix furnaces and stuff. I mean that's trade, so I, I don't know what that's called. Like you're the furnace guy. Yeah. <laughs> The furnace guy, what that is. So he 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 must have some sort of trade because he's fixing the furnace. Uh, what happens then is he he goes and he takes the you know the 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 the, the older couple have this huge and they're I mean yeah they're retired they're definitely in their sixties I would say you know yeah um, uh, and they have a huge bookcase and um, so uh, Richard takes a copy of Blake um, and uh, then then a little bit later a weird thing happens. Uh, they basically, um, and, and I, I'm, I may get the chronology wrong right here, but is it something goes wrong with the furnace a little bit later? They call the furnace guy back, but it's a different guy. Yes. And, and Albert asks him, Hey, where, where's the other guy? And this guy's a little older and he says, Oh, that, that kid, he was just, he was just down while I was on vacation. And he starts complaining about, kids like none of them are worth a damn thing and then he starts complaining about cats how there's nothing worse than cats all this guy does is complain well i think that was foreshadowing because uh, he was saying something about there was a cat in the crawl space yeah and he says you you got it you got to seal off the crawl space because if cats get in there it's the worst there's nothing worse than cats the guy leaves and soon after that they discover that richard is uh living in their crawl space and um, he's just and he's just he's just living there, and it's not like. I mean, technically, it's kind of a, it's it's like the calmest home invasion sort of <laughs> ever, because it's just he's living there, and it's really and, low key. You're right. And that 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 scene that that Amanda played earlier, that sort of seems like that happens several times in the first half of the movie where. Um, Albert goes down and just sort of leans towards the darkness and says, "How you doing, Richard?" Uh, is it cold there? Do you want to come up to the spare room? Okay, well, it was good to talk to you. Fine, fine. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. And then he goes away. And um, well, it, it, should we mention that he they try they actually try to lock him out? They they do. They seal off the uh, they have those basement doors, you know, like on the outside of the house, like the two big metal doors that open up 
that lead down under the house and they seal it off. And he comes home running because he's been out in the woods all day and he comes home and his hair, when it's not in the ponytail, is a little um, wow. wild child. And uh, and they actually go out there and they find that he's written the word God on their basement, um, the doors. Yes. Uh, and they eventually, they let him back in and it's, it's, um, it's, I, I had no idea really what to expect. I mean, the, the plot line is older couple living in a house, discover that a young man is living in the crawl space in their cellar. That's the plot or that's the tagline for the movie, but it's much weirder than that. It's an odd movie. And, well, and, they're they're like grappling with different things too. Like, and I know we'll talk about this more at the end. But I, I don't know at what point they really insinuate the fact that uh, Alice and Al, Albert, right? That I yeah. think they both have regret, but I think it's deeper in her that they never had children. And I don't know if it's because they couldn't have children or if it was just never happened. It's never explained. But um, Richard slowly becomes like this idea that he can be a son to them. Yes. And that's why they're so hesitant to nice. to take things one step further. And it, it's interesting because it happens very casually. It's it's a, 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 Well, it's a, agreed a, upon, right? It's it's sort of it's sort of a and, and it's it's because they, they talk about um is it Alice's sister Ada who has a whole bunch of kids. Yeah, and she writes and that letter. And... Constantly referring to them. And at some point, Alice writes a letter to her saying, you know, and signs it like, sincerely, uh, Albert, Alice, and Richard. Yes. And Albert's like, um, you know, is, is she going to know who Richard is? You know, and he doesn't say he's the weird man living in our crawl space. He just says, is she going to know who Richard is? And um, and it's it it builds up until Christmas Eve. With the implication that Christmas Eve every year is Alice and Albert by themselves, which isn't a bad thing. No, it's it's lovely. Um, but uh, but Alice has made Albert uh, well has got him a suit and has made him some clothes that he can wear. Um, and there is I will just hop back one moment. I I forgot is there is a scene where, um, and it's it's a, it's a slightly strange scene because I didn't actually catch it the first time I watched it, which is um. Richard living in the crawl space is letting off a bit of a smell. Oh, that's right. And she's so like, oh, Al mouse died. Yeah, and, and Albert goes down there and says, you know, maybe come on up and use the facilities. Huh? Please? You live it. And it's sort of like, it's kind of an inter interesting scene because it's, you know, I, I, I noticed it the second time I, I saw it where it was well, like, oh, yeah, that's right. A he's guy. definitely taking on – well, I guess he had it at the beginning, but you see it more as the film progresses. He's got a very fatherly tone with him. Yes. And and he's – I think – and I'll talk about this later. I've written about this movie in depth, and um, I can't wait to discuss all the things I wrote about. But, like, um, they're, they're sort of negotiating both of them a way into uh, developing a family. Yes. And – but it, it can't happen because it's artificial, right? Well, so – but that's what they're shooting for. There, there's the scene. There's a lovely scene uh, right before the. They, they they take the Albert takes the clothes down to Richard at Christmas Eve and says, "Hey, wear these. You know, um, Mrs. Graves would love you to come up and join us. That kind of thing." And Albert kind of goes back up without having heard a word from Richard, and they have a really, I thought, an interesting sort of scene together right before dinner. It's Richard. He's not coming, is he? I don't know. 
you brought him down his nice suit and everything. He wouldn't talk to me. He just stayed there in that black hole and scrambled around like a damn rat. What the hell are we doing with a boy in a hole in our cellar? That's all it is. Albert. How did we get into this? Oh, it's my fault. When I told him to come upstairs, he didn't say anything. I just assumed he was too shy. I, I suppose I thought I heard what I wanted to hear. I ought to get down. Oh, dear, no. Then all we can. Just put on your nice smoking jacket the way we planned. We'll have our Christmas Eve dinner, just the two of us, the way we always do. There's so much happening in that scene. Yes. You and, know. And, and the great, the great thing about it is, is the, the drama is so sort of high right there. But the moment where he says, what are we doing with a boy living in a hole? <laughs> to me, is such a funny line. Well, like they have moments of clarity. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they realize that what they're doing is crazy, but they still feel compelled. Like there's this really important part where uh, I can't remember what she says to him, but he was like, well, then why did you invite him to dinner? Like just from the start, they have this idea about him. Yes. And he, he, even when he comes up to dinner, which he does after a minute or two, he, it's like everyone sort of has a slightly different agenda about what this family is going to be. And yes, it, it, it makes for even the few moments when they're, you know, they're sitting there eating shrimp at Christmas Eve. It's, <laughs> it still feels a bit uncomfortable. Yes. And, and so, so, and I won't, I won't, the, the rest of the movie is basically, um, uh, there, there's actually, uh, what happens is Richard sort of becomes kind of like their son and he chops a lot of wood and he does chores around the house that um, that Albert can't do because of his heart. And for a little while, everything seems to be going great. Um, but then uh, Richard is sent into town to the grocery store to get some groceries. And there's a bit of um, a kerfuffle that yeah. occurs. And um, uh, tw- the $20 that Richard was given sort of vanishes. He kind of sets it on a counter and someone takes it. And so the next morning, they discover that someone has torn up the supermarket. Or that it's not a supermarket. It's a little market. It's a little like country general store. Um, and it's – Richard says it was – he did it. He did it. You know, they, they stole money from Albert and he was just, you know, sort of protecting him, returning the sort of favor right. of them being jerks. And things get – things get – worse as they go along and and um like a couple of the local kids well not kids but guys who are sort of the same age as richard begin harassing him they begin sitting outside the 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 graves's house like beeping the horn late at night you know shining lights yelling that kind of thing um and i I don't know how much i want to go into right here but things just things just stay in a strange unsteady course until the end of the movie and it's it's such an odd movie and i can if you'd like i can go a little deeper into some of the events into sure. it I, okay so well I, i'll just kind of move through it quickly um there is there is a really wonderful scene where the sheriff 
who is also like the town mechanic and the town bus driver, shows up. And they, he has this semi-cryptic conversation with the Graves where he says, hey, um, I just want to tell you, you know, there are a lot of kids around here, you know, they dropped out of college and they used to hang out at this barn where they do drugs and party. And, um, and it's sort of, uh, and, and the graves are like, well, what are you talking about? Well, we just, you know, you're, you've been, that young man is around your house, isn't he? Yes. And he's a very good boy and he's here and there's no problem. Okay. Well, I just, and it's this strange sort of cryptic kind of like, there are kids around here who are doing things we don't like. And we think Richard is one of them sort of thing, but there's a little more to it than that, I think, but it's, um. It's kind of a weird implication that they seem to be out to get Richard. Well, yeah, but, he's definitely been targeted as the outsider. Yeah, and, and it's, it's never said 100% why. I think it's just a sign of the times. That's yeah, that's it. Yeah, when when I get to when I get to the end, yeah, that was sort of my couple uh that was sort of what I thought on it. Yeah, that was um they and then there's a, there's a scene where um the Graveses are go to Boston for a couple days and they leave Richard a note. And when they come back, Richard has destroyed uh, Alice's loom. And um, there's a scene where they try to talk to Richard, but he gets very angry. You went off. I came in and you was gone. Richard, we left you a note. I waited all night for you and you didn't come back. But you knew we were in Boston. Mrs. Graves left you a note. Notes don't mean nothing. Richard, I know you could read. You wrote the word God on the cellar door. Brighton just lies to you. People always say they're coming back, but they never do. You left me. Mrs. Graves is upstairs crying. Don't you ever try that again. The point is, Richard. Don't you ever. Richard, Mrs. Graves and I have... You better not try that again. All right, Richard. It won't happen again. I promise they're like at their wits end. Yes, and and um that a little bit later the the local jerks come by and start causing more trouble and shooting like firecrackers at the house and that kind of thing. And there's a confrontation and um a series of confrontations that don't end well for anybody. Anyway. And it's just sort of it's just it's sort of one of those inevitable like it begins and there's sort of almost nothing you can do to stop this dramatic horror that, that's about yeah. to happen. And it's, um, and it's a, it's a, it's a strange, sad, weird movie. That's, that's, I found, I actually, I watched it twice this past weekend and I watched don't be afraid of the dark twice this past weekend. And I actually preferred watching crawl space twice. To don't be afraid of the dark. Just because Don't Be Afraid of the Dark is a wonderfully straightforward, yeah, sort of weird monster horror movie, whereas Crawl Space leaves a lot of things. It the Don't Be Afraid of the Dark when it leaves stuff sort of vague. It it feels like 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 we said, possibly the writer was writing it at the you know at the speed of light, right? Whereas this, when things are left vague, because it was based on a novel, I feel like. There's there's something else there well, that I haven't seen. I read the novel. Oh, okay. And, and I loved it. It's amazing. Um, 
and I highly recommend everybody read it. There's not that much. It's pretty faithful. There's some different things. So, like, uh, Richard does get a job. He gets a job at that gas station, mm-hmm. I believe. And the book – so what's really interesting is that the book doesn't end where the movie ends. There's more. Okay. And so um, without giving anything away, it – how do I want to word this? <laughs> it It's different. It's it's got a different ending, and the, I think the big failing of the there's no failing of the book. That's the wrong word. The hiccup I have with the book is that I think that they try to explain Richard too much. Oh, okay. And they chose not to do that in the movie, and I think that was the right choice. Very wise, yes. I yes, agree. but it has a totally different ending. So, um, like what I should say is, it goes on past that point. Okay. So where the movie ends, there's still like a chapter. Mm-hmm. And um, and is it like? Is it sort of like a like the ending of Psycho, where in the last chapter you suddenly get someone stepping forward and going, "Richard, was this, that, no, and the other thing?" No, 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 no. Oh, not at all. Um, okay. It carries forth with uh, with somebody continuing to tell the story, and um, it's pretty interesting, uh, and it's different. So um, uh, I'd say it's probably as devastating in a different way, maybe. Okay. Uh, so without giving anything away, but anyway, everybody should read the book and see the movie. Uh, yeah, I think Crawlspace, so I hadn't seen Crawlspace in a while. Um, I got the Wild Eye DVD when it came out, and I wrote about it extensively. I wrote about it for a website then, and then I wrote a paper on it, which I'll go into in a second. And then I wrote about it um, for my blog when I reviewed the book uh, against the movie. So, um, And then I kind of like didn't see it for a while. And so the other day I sat down and I watched like half an hour of it. I was in the middle of something, so I couldn't give it like the full 74 minutes. So I watched like 30 minutes of it. And my husband came home and I was like, I just started rewatching crawl space. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, it's so good. <laughs> like I forget how good that movie is. It's heartbreaking. Yes. Um, the actor that plays Richard, he didn't do too much. Tom Happer, he was in dark shadows and he did a couple other things. And he quit acting in the mid seventies, I think. And he's he's basically disappeared off the face of this earth. I can't find him, and I'm not the only one who's been looking for him. And he was actually kind of a pinup guy after he did Dark Shadows. He only shows up in a handful of episodes, but um, he was very popular. Mm-hmm. And I kind of see it, and I think maybe that's my perspective of Richard, is that like as a woman looking at him, I think, wow, he's really good looking. But he's also really scary. He's a bit, yes. And he's also really sad. So like when he's going to the grocery store... And they're like, do you want to write this down, Richard? And he's like, a tub of butter, carton of milk. You know what I mean? Like he Mm -hmm. memorized the shopping list. And he's doing it in part because he wants to do what's right. But also I think he wants to please them. Yes. And you see that like in that scene in particular. Well, and the way he cuts wood, like he he wants to please these people. But he just doesn't have like the social skills. Uh, to do it correctly, and and well, one of the things I did I, I did think of uh, forgive me is that I because I, I just thought of this is that he seems like the less social version of Lucan from the from the TV oh, you show. Know, I thought of Lucan too. Is that funny? yeah? It's it's like you know Lucan was raised by wolves, but he's actually got more social skills <laughs> than than Richard does, which is weird. But um, I'm sorry, continue. Well, I kind of at the end of the day. I feel like something's wrong with Richard and I don't know how to diagnose him and I wouldn't try, but I feel like it's not just, Oh, he's an ex hippie or he was in Vietnam or he lived in a commune. I mean, I feel like there was some really messed up stuff happening to him. And I think that he also probably had mental 
like disabilities, like learning disabilities and things like that. And it's never necessarily proven that he can read just because yes. he can write the word God. He has a very limited vocabulary, you know, even when he speaks, he doesn't really know how to express himself. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and it's frustrating for him and it's really frustrating for the graves to understand and, him. And part of it too, is they have that huge bookcase and they're constantly playing classical music and they're older, which to me is sort of like saying this is an older, more in, in quotes, sort of cultured right. generation. And Richard comes from, I don't know, is he shell shocked or is he, is he a Dodge drafter living in a cave somewhere or, or what's, what's his, you know, what's, what's his thing? And, you know, cause he does live in a cave. I'm yes. sorry. They do say that. And, um, yeah, it's really, I, I like that they don't explain it. I can't remember yeah. exactly. I feel like Vietnam comes into play in the book, but it, I can't remember precisely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because, so, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say there is the thought, too, when the sheriff says, I mean, this is, we were in, U.S. was in Vietnam until 73, and 72 was a big year. Yeah. With Nixon going crazy with his, his reelection, trying to keep us in in, in Vietnam, so it, it would have when the sheriff or the police, yeah, the sheriff guy, the sheriff guy, by the way, who was played by the guy who played um, the uh, defense attorney who falls in love with um, uh, Jessica Tate at the end yes. of season one and yes. started. I believe season, his name is so- Eugene Roche. He's great. He was also in a chi- the Chinese dog episode of Ellery Queen. He's um, wonderful. He's Luther on Magnum PI. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, you you know him when you see him. He's one of yeah, those. He's guys. a great. He was also in the Possessed, which where another oh. serious role he took on. Um, um, and I'm so, I saw so, uh, I forgot what I was saying. Oh yeah, when he mentions that these kids dropped out of college and then went to a barn and got high. Because to me, if they're drop out of college, that means they're eligible to get drafted. So oh, okay. so it's sort of like I wonder if um, it's sort of like. When when he says they were at the barn, is it sort of like did they drop out of college and these kids just like in one fell swoop vanish or something and then they found them in this barn or something? I don't know. I mean, part of me thinks that there there really wasn't like a group of people living in a barn. I mean, there probably was and they probably weren't causing a lot of problems. But I feel like the whole movie is about Richard being negated of full personhood. Mm-hmm. And because he lacks a family, he's an outsider. He is ignored. He lives in a cave. Yes. He lives in a cave. And I feel like the whole movie is, from Richard's perspective, is Richard looking for a fuller identity. And, and there is the the meaning of the crawl space too. You know, or when well, he, whenever he says, you know, I I like the crawl space because it's like it's my space. Well, and yeah, I and it's warm here. and it's safe. Yeah. But I saw the I actually saw the crawl space. So let me just real quickly. I'm gonna oh, yes, a little hoity toity. Um, right, so I took a class on Frankenstein when I was in my undergrad school and it was, a, it was only a three week course and we had to write a paper and all we had to do was we had to find something that reminded us of Frankenstein. And then we had to like write an argument paper to say why it's, it takes certain tropes from Frankenstein. So I was, I knew off the bat, I wanted to do a TV movie and I, and I struggled with a couple of them. prototype directly lifts from Frankenstein. And we'll get to that movie eventually. It's one of my favorites. It's a Levinson link film. And, um, but this movie kept sticking out to me because there's things about it, even more so in the novel that feel like it's actually like a modern day take on Frankenstein. If Frankenstein came from a real person, it wasn't just invented it. And, uh, by a madman and um and he does a lot of things that Frankenstein does like chopping the wood and things like that and um 
So the crawl space to me was the gestation of him becoming their son. So in Frankenstein, he builds the monster and there's like that birth scene. Do you know what I mean? When he raises him up with the electricity and everything or however they did it in the book. I'm sorry. I can't even remember now. I'm thinking of the movie. And, um, and it, we talked about that in school as the gestation birth scene. And he's gestating for months in that crawl space. That's the womb. Right. And that's where, that's where he's developing. Cause he's taking pieces of stuff from their house, right? Like there's ribbon and there's boxes. And so he's, um, he's sort of figuring out a way to be reborn as like their son. And he tries real hard when he comes out in the suit and to sit there at the dinner and to have this very, what he wants to be a real natural Christmas evening dinner with his parents. But, and, and on the opposite side, and this is not from Frankenstein, but, and I didn't write about this as much, but they also want a son so bad that they're willing to take this guy who just invites himself himself into their house and take him in and try to like raise him. And the reason why it doesn't work is because they both want different things. They both have different ideas of what the perfect family is and the perfect family doesn't exist to begin with. And they're not prepared for each other. Like they're not prepared for Richard to be as crazy as he is. And Richard's not prepared for them to not love him the way he needs to be loved. And that's where the collision comes at the end. Right. So I wrote about, so Frankenstein in a lot of ways is about family, right? Frankenstein is born and then, but his dad doesn't want him. And so I kind of took this idea of like the reconstruction of the family. And then uh, how do you build like, so do you remember he finds that guy out in the woods who's blind Yes. And, he's, oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. he's accepted. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like this is sort of a take on that in a way. Um, only I looked at it from the point of view that in the seventies, there was a lot of social anxiety about divorce mm-hmm. and, and about the fact that things were changing and the, what we thought was the normal in quotes family was no longer normal. It was single families and you know what I mean? And lots of different incarnations, people living together and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And so that's where the anxiety comes from. And then actually they're all in a way, they're all outsiders from the tradition, but then the tradition doesn't even exist anymore. If that makes sense. Yes. So, yes. well, that's pretty good. Yeah. I like that. I like so, that. so I'll read you my first paragraph if you want to hear oh, it. Please. Yeah. Yeah. I won't, you can read the essay on my blog and it's very hoity toity. I tried to throw in all kinds of words and cause it was a, you know, college class and stuff. I, it's probably a little dry, but I posted it anyway because I spent a lot of time on it. So uh, my article is called Crawl Space and the Belly of the Beast. And here's just the first paragraph. And I think there's a typo in here. So if you mishear a word, that's because I read it wrong. So excuse me. Although Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was written more than 150 years before the 1972 made-for-television film Crawl Space, the filmmakers have used the story to explore the othered in search of identity through the romanticized family structure while putting a contemporary spin on it. Many products of 70s television observed lost youth towards the end of the Vietnam War, but Crawl Space handles this material of desire to return to normalcy in more opaque ways. In the film, Richard Attlee's past is a mystery shrouded in dystopia. He's a marker for the other, or a modern-day Frankenstein-like creature, unable to move into public life. Portrayed as a feral man-child with no stories, no history, and hardly any words to explain his past, even if he wanted to, he invades the crawl space beneath the house of Albert and Alice Graves in the hopes he will become 
they will become parental figures to him. As those who are different from the norm, both Frankenstein's creature and Richard play on our social fears of the domestic. While Crawl Space maintains the, no the notions of identity creation through the idealized family, it also uses Frankenstein's monster as a springboard to explore the terrifying disintegration of that same domestic mold of the 1970s. Done. Nice. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I mean, so this movie kind of translates to me differently than I. Part of it, when I, I was actually thinking today that s sometimes it reminded me sort of uh, several uh, like Ingmar Bergman films, like uh, his his religion trilogy from the '60s, through all a glass through a glass darkly, uh -huh. Winter Light and the Silence, sort of where like you have these people and they're like they're all trying to get closer to one another, but there's like something that just isn't, there's like a wall and there's walls and they can't, no one can quite get as close as they all need to be to one another. And if they could just tear down this wall, you know, if they could just find out, maybe just get through to Richard, just in, they could, everyone would be so happy and everyone would be so nice together, but it's just, it doesn't happen for whatever reason, whether yeah. it's themselves or whether it's the, you know, the jackasses beeping their horns and throwing firecrackers at the house. You know, it's, it's there, there's sort of like this, ah, this, this, this thing that it's in the way of the, the sort of human relationships just kind of becoming good things rather right. than just butting heads. Well, yeah. They're definitely, it's so dysfunctional. I mean, it's dysfunctional from the get go. Oh, there's a guy yeah. in our crawl space. Well, yeah, that's, here's that's, a sweater. And I also, and another thought I had, which is a little more, um, eh, than some of the other theories we've had is I, I always think too, it's like, you know, you had the hippies and they all left their parents and they went off to live in this beautiful world of love. And then that shit fell apart. And so maybe yes. Richard, maybe Richard was someone who went out, got blasted on acid. And now he's, he's, oh. he doesn't know what to do after the hippies are gone. And right. we're, we're one year away from uh us leaving vietnam and watergate and sort of every you know everything that people were clinging on to sort of falling apart i mean this is the time period too where um you know like the number one shows in america are all in the family and sanford and son and shows like that shows that are like deliberately like getting your face and like shaking you right but but in about two three years we're going to be loving shows like happy days and laverne and shirley which very specifically are about do you remember how great we used to be and yeah, so it's definitely. like it's like the the uh, america's right on the verge of like you know isn't isn't i i could be this i could be making this fact up but isn't didn't like nixon uh abandon like the apollo program to continue to fund vietnam if i'm making that up yeah i'm not sure someone tell me but I, he did I, a lot of crazy stuff so I, I feel like that was something that he did whether everyone knew that he did it or whether that was but it was like it's like there there was a time in the late 60s where it felt like it was all going to be love and we were all going to be right. getting high and listening to sergeant pepper all day then the 70s start and it it didn't happen well, and someone someone like richard is left out in a cave well you brought up something really interesting and we can actually tie this to west craven but you so there the 70s tv was really like it had a lot of great, very, like, good times and, like, all these shows that were really based on, like, 
kind of real people in like yes. sort of depressed situations and they were good shows. They were funny, but like you knew that they were poor and they were struggling. Mm-hmm. And then you're right. Happy days in Laverne and Shirley. And there was a lot of nostalgia for the fifties. And then we just put the fifties in modern day in the eighties and like shows like the Cosby show mm-hmm. and family ties and um, growing pains, all those shows. Who's the boss even um, had like kind of like these really middle-class sort of perfect, Leave it to Beaver. They might not be like full traditional family units, mm-hmm. but there was a very Leave it to Beaver like existence. And everybody wore like the newest clothes and hip yes. hairstyles and they had beautiful houses like uh, Angela's house and Who's the Boss? Yeah. It was great. And she was like this really Kate strong Nally executive. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. But she like, they lived well. And mm-hmm. Tony Danza lived well for working for her. Do you know yes. what I mean? So there wasn't a lot of strife. Not like when. Ma in Florida would butt heads. You know what I mean? It yeah. was never like that. And so I think that's, and you know, Wes Craven, we talked about this on the last podcast, but Wes Craven took those sort of aesthetics mm-hmm. and he subverted them and he took like the ugliness of that and sort of in different metaphorical ways, particularly in Inv- Invitation to Hell. Yes. And a little bit in Chiller. And, and he said, well, here's your manicured lawns, but look what you have to do to get here. Yes, you got to go through hell. Yeah. And I feel like I just had to drop the mic moment. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. That yeah, it's yeah, it's it's such a it's it's a. I mean, when when Crawl Space came out, it's 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 a. Well, there are a lot of fascinating times in in history, but it's 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 just one of those where it's right on the verge of everything's about to go a little screwy and yeah, and, and it's interesting because it's not like they knew that. Yeah, exactly. But you they, know. but their film sort of uh, foresees it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I don't know if I want to read the novel because I don't know if I want to know anymore. Oh, it's a beautiful it. novel. Okay, it, it's really well written. Uh, I mean, it's up to you, but um, I, I don't even remember why I bought it. I think I found it used, and I was like, I think this is. Uh, was made into a TV movie and I picked it up and then I was like, you know what? I'm, I was going to do this thing where I was going to review novels and the book mm-hmm. and I was only able to do it twice because when I'm in school, it's hard for me to read anything sure. except school books. And so I did it with Bad Ronald and I mm. did it with um, Crawl Space so far. And um, it's a really good read. It's re- it's a real hard book to put down. Okay. and um, it, But it's pretty faithful except for the ending's a little different and there's some little bits added into the story, but I don't think that it veers too far. I can only imagine what people must have thought watching this back in 1972. I mean, it's like, yeah, you know, it's like I'm going to watch this, or you know, let's. I, I was going to do Sanford and Son, but I think I'm going to do Crawl Space instead. <laughs> well, it's too it's bad just, there's no promo for it because I would like to see how they marketed it. Yeah, because it's yeah, a I tough can, film. Because yeah, if you just give sort of the tagline, it's like, oh, okay, I think I might know what this is about, but it's not about that at all really right. and and it's it, it it's might just... it might be interesting here to point out and i know you told me this and i know i've read it too is that john newland i think was up to direct bad ronald yes and he didn't buzz kulik ended up doing it but it's um interesting because in some ways this is like bad ronald yeah it's it's like bad bad ronald is more the thriller version yeah, of the, this yeah the exploited whereas, exploitation version yeah whereas this is more of almost not quite like an art house film yeah. version of it or something and like i that. almost like, paired those two together cross we did yeah yeah that almost happened folks. but i, I have a bit i have i think 
Bad Ronald. Yeah, we'll let you know what the other film is. Bad Ronald is on our list, but it's it's dark enough that I felt like I needed something lighter with it. So mm-hmm. I think I've got a better double, well, more interest. It'll be a pretty interesting double feature. I'll be interested to hear what everybody thinks. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so so Mr. Newland had oh, he made some really interesting films, and it's hard for me to 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 not it's not hard for i don't know what the words i want to use is it's just weird to wrap your brain around the fact that he was the guy on one step beyond yeah you know and here and it's these movies are like even though i think don't be afraid of the dark is definitely the more popcorny of the two these are like kind of intense movies i mean both of them have pretty nihilistic endings yes um very dark films um they're very much of their time and they're creepy in their own ways. They're distinctly creepy. That's the thing. It's not like so. John Lamont Moxie has this thing called the Lamoxie. Oh, I've called it this. Uh, <laughs> the Moxie twist. He's got several films that kind of end the same way. Even when he has different screenwriters working with him, they all tend to. Not every film he's made, but he's, a lot of his uh, more popular thrillers tend to have the same ending, and it's always this twist. And so, it's a signature, right? Mm-hmm. John Newland doesn't necessarily have a signature. But at the same time, that's his signature. Yeah. You know, like the endings are both, the Don't Be Afraid of the Dark is a totally different film than Crawl Space. Mm-hmm. But the feeling at the end is there and it's palpable. And, there's and something it's, to... it's very much feels like, if you think about it, yeah, like a, a very unique kind of quality yeah. to his films. And, um, and I'm just really pleased that we got to talk about these and that I got yeah. to uncover the fact that he was the john newland from yeah. one step beyond it's just so cool and that he actually did a lot behind the scenes uh for tv movies mm-hmm. um and so just a couple pieces of trivia you're right this was shot in a place called norwich connecticut mm-hmm. which you mentioned at the beginning it ran against two mules for sister sarah on nbc oh, wow. and on abc they were showing room 222 the odd couple in love american style Oh, boy. Love, yeah. love, love. Yeah, that's pretty much like the best show ever. Um, this was actually the third time that Teresa Wright and Arthur Kennedy uh, acted together. They were cast as couples in Crawl Space. But before that, they also played couples in a movie called Hail Hero and something called Appalachian Autumn, which has to be the best movie ever. Let's <laughs> put that out there. Um, Arthur Kennedy... Uh, Oh, just a random piece of trivia about Arthur Kennedy that I saw I thought was interesting. Arthur Kennedy was actually in a Broadway flop titled The Jaguar, with which he co-starred with James Dean. Huh. And there's actually photos of it online, you can see. And just to get back to Jim Hutton and to have another thread here, Arthur Kennedy was also college roommates with David Wayne. Oh, wow. Hillary Clean, Queen, and who was also the first Digger Barnes on Dallas. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. You can't deny yeah. the Digger Barnes, right? we got to oh, give this. Yeah. Um, Tom Happer, I think I said this already, he had a short-lived television career, uh, best known for being on Dark Shadows. He was actually in 16 Magazine as a pinup, and you can see the pinup online, and it's creepy. Oh, like, boy. He's got, he's, he's, okay, I have to say, every time I watch this movie, I think, wow, Tom Happer is so gorgeous, but he's also really creepy. And in this, whatever this pinup picture is that they took of him for 16 Magazine, he's, he's just creepy. And it's like, <laughs> it is so weird for me to think of like a 16-year-old girl looking at that photo. <laughs> and I'm only comfortable with it now because I'm old enough that I feel like I could take him on if I had to. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like at 16, I think he might I'd be like, whoa, oh, I don't know, Tom. You're a little creepy. It's so, the hunk from Crawl Space. <laughs> oh, Arthur Kennedy? No. Eugene Roche? No. The, the guy, the, young. the hunk. The hunk. That wasn't the original tagline. The hunk from Crawl Space on CBS. <laughs> 
Please enjoy. I probably would watch it. So, and speaking of John Newland working with really good composers, um, Jerry Goldsmith did the score. Oh wow! Yeah. To Crawl Space, which is really beautiful. Um, it's it's just lovely and stands out to me. Also, I, I want to point out that Matthew Cowles played the bad boy. He's sort of like the antagonist at the store. Um, I only bring that up because uh, my, Matthew Cowles just passed away like two years ago. He uh, is best known to me for playing Billy Clyde Tuggle on All My Children. Oh. And he was also married to Christine Baranski. And um, he's a really cool actor. Uh, I saw an interview with him shortly before he passed away when All My Children was online. And um, he's this crazy looking guy with like a big, thick, like Wilford Brimley walrus mustache. Wow. And um, and Billy, Billy Clyde Tuggle was a pretty interesting character on All My Children. So I wanted to point that out. Also, Teresa Wright did um, an interview to promote the movie. And she said, uh, the way she saw the film, and I'm quoting her, actually it's a situation that can confront almost anybody living in a private home, either in a big city or out in the country. This is a poignant and moving drama. And on first reading of the script, I found myself in a state of suspense, wondering what the outcome would be. And I think that's interesting that you mentioned it was a home invasion, because I think that's what she's kind of thinking of. I think, in a well, way. There, there, there is one thing I do forget to mention is that when Alice finds out he's there, they're a little creeped out by it at first, but then she loves it. But then at the end, when things start to go wrong, she starts screaming more or less like, get him out of my house. She's get him the, out of my yeah, house. Yeah, she's the one that – and I was surprised by that. She and, turned quick. Yeah, Al, Albert keeps like a sort of a, a sort of a flat, straight line throughout. He never varies too much. But she goes from – uh, he should probably leave to, I love him so much. I'm going to tell my sister about him to get him out, get him out, get yeah. him out. Yeah. She, she, she turns, she gets the idea real fast. That the, oh my God, this was the wrong idea. Yeah. And but he Maybe doesn't seem as attached to her either. Yeah. You know, it's more like a father son thing than, yeah. than it is. And maybe that's part of it. Because he I, does. I don't know. Yeah, Richard does talk a lot about, you know, I'm going to, you can't do these things around the house now because of your heart. So I'll, I will be able to yeah. cut the wood. And, well, and, I mean, they stuff. have the most interaction together, too. Like, she's there and, like, she's cooking or something, and I think he's eating. But, mm -hmm. like, it doesn't have the same resonance that it does when it's Albert and yeah. Richard. Mm -hmm. So, and also, just a really weird piece of trivia, but the furniture in the film. Uh, was really expensive. They totaled about $50,000 just to furnish the home because they decided to use all authentic 18th century American pieces. And um, the dining room table actually cost $5,000. Wow. Yeah. I just found that in an old newspaper article. So that was interesting. <laughs> so I wrote it down. You get the best newspapers where you are. I know. It's fun. I like, I like research. Um, so... Those are our movies. Yay! Yeah, we hope you got something out of it. We hope you, if you haven't seen either one of them, you seek them out. Both. So we try to leave the endings a little open for you. So. Yeah, that's hard to do, and it's and in a way, if we spoil it, it's not that bad. But I mean, with something like Crawl Space, I feel like Crawl Space is legitimately obscure, even though it had a DVD release. Yeah. I feel like. It, a lot of people didn't see it. And, you know, it didn't get great reviews on DVD. And, oh, so this this is something I want to bring up before we get to feedback. So I listen a lot to podcasts, which is part of what inspired me to do this. Uh, I also podcast, too. I've never thought of posting one, though, till recently. But um, I was listening to a podcast today at work called um, Unjustly Maligned. Is that right? Or is it unfairly? Yes, I believe so, yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah. I think it's unjustly maligned. It's a British podcast, and um, they take different topics, 
uh, that they think that pop culture sort of frowns on. And but then they show that it has a legacy and it's important and they bring people on that are quote unquote experts in the field. And um, and so I listened to two episodes today and they had this woman come on. And of course, I didn't write down her name. She did a book about the history of romance novels and she was really fascinating. And they talked about a lot of really interesting things. Um, but I, I ended up writing some stuff down because I felt like it sort of applied to TV movies and. So the guy who hosts the show was saying to her that it's there are two different perspectives of any kind of piece of entertainment or genre of entertainment, I guess. And that's that from the outsider looking in, we see all these tropes, right? Mm -hmm. And the insider looks at those tropes and they see what people do with those tropes. And, the, and so... Uh, what they're saying is like, so like there's a, everything has a literary shorthand and films are obviously most famous for that. TV movies in particular, because they had 74 minutes to tell a story and for people. And so you hear it all the time. Like somebody will say, oh, I went and saw so-and-so. Was it good? Oh, it's kind of like a TV movie, you know, and mm -hmm. that's their way of like discounting something. And so they're looking at it from a perspective of that TV movies tend to be very formulaic. Um, more so now than ever, probably, but they they definitely follow certain formulas and they have certain beats and they have to be a certain way by every commercial break. But for people who really like TV movies, and it's like this for anything, romance novels, horror movies in particular, um, for those of you who watch them a lot, you see the blueprint, but you see what they're doing with the blueprint and it can be really amazing. So, you know, uh, lots of movies have like Sasha movies are the are the best example I have. Yeah. They go from point A to point B, right? And well, there is a point A to point B in all Sasha movies. Like there's this, this is how it starts, this is where it ends. But where they go and while they're heading to point B is is important. And so TV movies to me, I think, are like that. And I think people look at them from the outside and they just see these like little middling fair thrillers or whatever like they, but I think that you could really sit down, especially with a movie like crawl space and it's, it's uh, an experience, you know, and it shouldn't be missed out because it was made for a network or because it had certain boundaries because part of the creativity comes from being able to use those boundaries and still do something different with it. And that's what TV movies have been doing since when 1964. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I just wanted to bring that up. I just thought that was a really important point. Yeah. Maybe I didn't articulate it as well as I wanted to, but that's it's 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 variations on a theme. I think it's again, like you said, it's it's like if people are looking into like people who hate rock and roll, you know, or jazz. Here's a good like people who hate jazz. Here, jazz is just like a bunch of people playing music kind of really fast and what are they up to whereas people who love jazz are in there and they're going okay here's this solo and it's based on this tune and that kind of thing and it's 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 the same with slashers also you know it's like you know my mother can't differentiate you know madman from don't go in the woods and i say i say ma you're nuts look at this and i say this is different from this she can't see it but i can see it right and that's that's a and one of the joys of like for example, um, uh, like having the, the Merrill book is that you read these descriptions of these movies and it's like I just keep putting little – little like uh, with the highlighter, I'll do just little yeah. yellow bars and go, oh my gosh, I got to see this one and I got to see this one. And, and, and suddenly you have 100 movies that you've checked off and it's like, oh my god, I, I got to see all of these. Right. And, 
and it's it's yeah it's it's variations on a theme and when you're yeah when you're within the world it's the greatest joy to see all the variations and when you're outside the world it's just it becomes it becomes it can become i'm not a big romantic comedy fan i can see why folks would enjoy them but to me they're variations on themes that i'm not interested in right but 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 you everybody should be interested in tv movies that's what exactly precisely they're they're, they're, oh my god they're fantastic they have a legacy it's ridiculous if you're not that's all yes Yes. That's all. Um, so uh, I guess we'll do feedback. We got yeah. a little bit of feedback, feedback. this week. Um, so I'll just read t- uh, three pieces I got, and then I think Dan has one. I have like one piece. One okay. Piece. Um, so this comes from Brian Finley from the Facebook page. Uh, Good, you're on iTunes. I got to listen to all of the first episode. I love old school TV movies. They have a rough homemade feel to them. I remember being freaked out as a kid by a scene at the end of The Screaming Woman. So The Screaming Woman... Uh, it's a really cool movie. I believe it's an ABC movie of the week. Olivia de Havilland. I think it was her first TV movie. I want to say, uh, yeah. That's yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. And it might have even been her first time on television. And it was an interesting film, not just for the fact that it's pretty good. It's really brisk and light, but it's got the opening scene to me is actually the freakiest part. Like when she yes. comes across the screaming woman. Yes. That's the part where I'm like, oh, my God, because it's just kind of startling. Mm-hmm. But um uh, I can't remember who's in the movie with her. I don't know if it's Walter Pigeon or Joseph Cotton or both. Well, Walter Pigeon is in it. Yeah. yeah so they interviewed and Joseph Cotton. Yeah, oh, wow. they interviewed yeah. one of them for to promote. The, it got a lot of promotion, I think, because of the caliber of actor. And they all were they were not very hip on TV in general. Um, <laughs> and but TV movies was a place for them to go because they weren't getting a lot of work in other places and. Olivia de Havilland enjoyed the character. She thought she was a little different than what she was used to. But um, in general, I think it felt a little like a step down to them. But it was also consistent work. Yeah. So I think they had a love-hate relationship with that. Aaron Spelling, and maybe he even produced The Screaming Woman. I don't think he did, but I know he produced a lot of TV movies. He really liked to take advantage of old-school Hollywood. Uh, You see it a lot on Love Boat. But just in general, he had... He was pretty disgusted, and he talks about this in his biography, which is an amazing book. Um, he he talks about how Hollywood, like, once a woman ages and she's no longer, like, as sexy, the sexy ingenue, didn't forget it. You can stop getting parts. But to him, it was, like, an honor to work with these people because they were so amazing and they had such talent. And he's like, you know what, if somebody else isn't going to pick them up for something, I'm going to take them. And so I think some of the actors probably were like, oh, God, the love boat. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. But it was good work. Yeah. And I mean, earlier today I watched a two-hour episode of The Love Boat with oh, uh, love boat Angels, Charlie's yeah. Angels, Love Boat Angels with Burt Convy as oh, well. uh, uh, yeah, as Captain Hunk Hunkington, yes. no, <laughs> and with Bo Hopkins. Oh my God, yes. forget yeah, it. Come on, I'm and sorry. Yeah, that that was a tangent, but uh, Bert no, but, was great. But that's like that's, what I mean is like so. What Love Boat created, um, and what I let think, no man tear asunder. Yes, no, well, but, well, what I mean is what what we don't see so much anymore. Although uh, maybe a little bit. I don't watch as much new TV, so I can't really speak to that. But uh, it was really c- cross generational. Yeah. And it was it was like you could be young, you could be middle aged, you could be older, you could be thin, you could be overweight, you could be black, you could be white, you could be this, you could be that. 
and you can find, you could be divorced, you could be single, you could be widowed. You're gonna find love on the love boat. Yeah, you could be Charo. And you, you could be find, anybody, and it yeah. you could be you could be ferret face and Charo, right? Remember how <laughs> yeah. they got together, Larry Lynn Milliner, and and. <laughs> It was like everybody had a shot. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter if you were rich or you were poor. As long as you could get on that boat and and you would meet somebody. And it was kind of like looking back now, uh, really empowering uh, to see all these people of different ages, um, you know, getting fulfillment in different parts of their life, you know? And so, uh, not to get off the the screaming woman, but then when I think of <laughs> Olivia de Havilland in television, I kind of think of that mm -hmm. she was, cause she was on love boat as well. Um, with maybe Joseph Cotton. I can't remember now. I think it might've been Joseph Cotton and, um, that they were like in this weird place in their career, but there was, places that accepted them. And it was a place for people like me who were too young to really know who Olivia de Havilland was mm -hmm. to discover her in this venue. And so t television really served an important purpose. And I yeah. think, uh, I was really glad that she, and I think Screaming was a pretty legit movie. Yeah. And it's from a, based on a story, a Ray Bradbury story. Oh, I didn't know so, that. Yeah. I don't think yeah. I knew that. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen it in years. It's been like 10 years I, since I've seen I, it. I saw it about a year ago. It's, it's quite, it's quite wonderful. Very, it's very fun, nicely isn't it? done. Yeah. And she's mm -hmm. so good. You know, she's yeah. so, yeah, she's, she's great. Yeah. She's old school, but it's just like, you can't take your eyes off her. She has yeah. so much presence and it was really wonderful. Um, so my second piece of feedback comes from Kristen Haas who uh, I met a while back on Twitter. I used to do live tweets for the Friday night TV movies that MeTV used to air. And, um, and she was, she was like the one person that always came along with me and we'd tweet together and stuff. She's really fun. So um, she wrote, subscribed, finally got to listen to the first two shows and I love them. You guys are great. You're all so fun and knowledgeable. I really enjoy hearing about the TV movies I haven't seen and learning bits of trivia about the ones I love. It's a blast listening to you guys. So thank you, Kristen. Oh, by the way, thank, thank you, Brian, you, for listening. I forgot to say that. Um, so she's also a writer. So I'm just going to plug her blog real quick. Um, I haven't actually read any of her stuff yet, but I just saw when I visited her site, she has some freebies. So you should go download some of her stuff and check it out. Um, she's really funny. Um, I don't think she writes about funny things, but she's very articulate. Uh, so you can find her uh, Kiki, K-I-K-I, KikiWritesAbout.com. So let's all get on our computers. Yes. Now. And, and look up Kristen. And then my third piece of feedback came in at the zero hour, right before we started recording this on uh, our our Facebook, not our Facebook page, our website. And I'll give all this information at the end. And this is Caffeinated Joe, who I oh, also wow. know from Twitter. Um, and he's a great guy. Uh, he also has a blog and I didn't write it down. So I'll try to get it for the next show. Um, so he wrote, just finished episode one, finally. I love listening to the three of you discuss these films. Dark Knight of the Scarecrow is a great one. I only saw it for the first time a few years ago and loved it. I want to see all the rest you you all mentioned, especially <laughs> This House Possessed. Parker oh, Stevenson was a role model of mine as a kid due to his role in The Hardy Boys. Anyway, great beginning. Hope to get ep to episode two very soon. So thank you so much, Joe. Um, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Parker Stevenson should be everybody's role model, just so <laughs> that's official. It's a place to start. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I, I have one bit of feedback, but it's a, it's a slightly weird bit of feedback because it was sent by a, a friend of mine who I went to high school with, uh, Matt. Um, 
and he he actually wrote to well I'll read what he wrote he wrote in chunks and there <laughs> isn't actually much it's only about three or four sentences okay but it's um uh uh listen to uh first two thirds of the podcast uh congrats first of all congrats I have notes I thought okay so I'll scan down a little bit to the notes and he he lists the um. The podcasts he currently listened to, and they're basically all comedy podcasts, okay. and like Comedy Bang Bang and like Paul F. Tompkins stuff. And then he he asked me because um, I used to be a bit of a cut up back in the day, <laughs> and he says, "You do anything on the comedy front?" There were some easy zingers that seemed overlooked in your episode one, and then he says, "I hope you get some ads for your podcast." <laughs> so so all I will What's say his name is. Again? Matt. Thank you, Matt. That, thank, thank you. That Matt. was a zinger right there. That was that was a great that was a great zinger. Um, I was gonna say, uh, Warner Archive, are you listening? I can. Um, I'm watching your don't go. Uh, don't go afraid of the dark. Don't be afraid of the dark. Uh, DVD right <laughs> you here. You to get the title right first. So well, I, I will say to address Matt, I do want to be funnier. It's just hard, um, because we're new at this, like mm-hmm. hosting something. I'm not gonna speak for you. I'm gonna. I'll just speak for me. But um, I do – there were a couple times when Dan was saying things and I was like, should I interject? And I don't know. I'm not comfortable yet necessarily just throwing in something that mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure it's going to work just because it hit my brain. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a comedian. But um, but I do think that it, it sh- you should you should be fun for sure. I don't know if that's what he's saying or if, if like – we should be talking. We should have made a joke about Kim Darby's hair more. I don't, I don't know. Well, he didn't. I was hoping for a little more, like an extra note. Like I thought. Well, we're not. We're not specifically a zinger-related show. <laughs> so Wait, I, I, I put that in the metadata. I, I, I but, zinger-related. But you know, I I try to throw in some some jokes when I can. I think part of it too with Skype, especially when you have multiple people, um, is oh, that did you hear those fireworks. I did. What was that? That's is that something those, outside my house? Uh, those are those, something just blew up. Yeah, that's great. Those oh. are those people. They're outside your house. They're ch- is Richard in your crawl space? Do you have a crawl space? Don't. Where's your husband? Is he in the crawl space? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I think, I think what it is part, part of it too is when you have um, three folks on Skype and you're all sort of, sort of getting to know one another kind of thing. Um, and you, you try to be polite. And I think that's part of the thing is we're all very polite. Yeah. We'll stop being here. polite after like the 10th episode. Yeah. So, so we'll hit the point where we get a groove going and it, it won't be like if, if Amanda thinks of something funny to say right now, she'll just jump right in and say it. She won't say, Oh, I just thought of something or, Oh, excuse me. Or pardon me. Or sorry to, you know, something like that. I think. I, I think it's good to like bring up Nate's podcast at this point because if you listen yes. to Stereo Continues from the first episode, and I highly recommend everybody download every episode they're right a now. A lot of fun. Yeah, they're a lot of fun, but they you can tell like there's a, definitely a transition right from the first episode to where they are now, they and that's because two of them live in other countries and and had never spoken to the other two in person except maybe once or twice, and and also they're starting and they want people to listen and they don't want to like overstep boundaries and like, you know, and they want to like set the tone or whatever. And so, um, and talking on Skype is not like talking on an old style phone where you can like, where it works. I, can, I, I, mean? I, I, I can, well, I can like <laughs> hear, I can hear, um, uh, like, uh, you know, like if, if, if I'm 
you know, talking on a, you know, dial it up phone from back in the day. Dial it up. Dial it up. I can, I could hear like your, the, your room and everything in the background as I'm talking still. Whereas on Skype, when I talk, I can't hear anything anymore, but at all. And then when you speak, I can hear what you're, so there's sort of that, um, I don't know that, that almost sort of background noise that, that, you know, cause it's like, I could be talking to you right now and you could suddenly not be there. And so I'm talking like an idiot and then suddenly you're not there anymore. <laughs> that actually so it's happened, like, didn't it? Yeah, that had, that possibly happened earlier today. Um, but, uh, but the, so, so I think the zingers will expand as the show goes on. Um, <laughs> and you just, uh, I think it's something to look forward to. I mean, I think he brings up a good point cause I know we got really serious and I'm like, this movie's about the social anxieties of the seventies. But at the same time, it's like, there's so much I want to say, and yeah. it's like, I don't know that all of it's going to be funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to have fun with it. Um, I'm just hang, hang with us. We'll get, yes. Know. Hang on. We'll get there. We'll get there. You got it. Yes. And, yeah. And, and I think that kind of feedback, like, I think, yeah, maybe an example would have been helpful, but at the same time, like if that feedback had shown up from a stranger, it mm-hmm. would have been just as valid. Like yes. I want to hear people, like, I don't want to hear people like, oh, this fucking sucks. I've been watching, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I know about this movie and you know, those people exist. And, yes. and I don't care about that. I don't care. Go have your own podcast. I, I welcome it. But like, and as, I'm not saying we're going to get that, but there are people who have legitimate like, well, you know what? You, you kind of missed this big part here where like yeah. one of the best scenes is this, or you did talk about this, or I think you guys got too off topic. Um, that's all legitimate and, yes. and I welcome any kind of feedback that's like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't guarantee you I can throw out zingers. I'll start reading some of my joke books. <laughs> you know, like what is that? Where were those gross joke books that were so popular? We were like, Oh yeah. yeah. The, yeah. The, the gross, yeah. The gross jokes. I don't even remember more. Gro- yeah, I know. Truly I know. tasteless jokes or something. Truly tasteless jokes. Yeah, yes. I'll, I'll definitely like, she's going to, Oh boy. I'll the definitely Polak, pick one of those. The Polak up. jokes are on the way. Yeah, no, I'm. I'm Ladies and gentlemen. Oh my God, we can never sell those books now. Could you imagine? That's really yeah. Funny oh my God. About it. Uh, but so um, I'll prepare some jokes for the next episode, and you tune in. And um, oh, we should remind me. Let's talk about what we're going to do the next episode. First, let me give her contact information. <laughs> yes, please. Because it's getting kind of late too. So yes, yes. Know, yes. Like if there's no zingers, we got to go to bed. So. <laughs> Okay, so there's several different places you can find us. We want you to visit us in all these different venues. We haven't had a lot of activity on any of these pages yet, so um, feel free to visit them. Uh, so our website is tvmayhempodcast.wordpress.com. Now, right now, I've just been uploading the podcasts uh, to listen to there. I want to start adding content. The only problem is I don't want it to interfere with my blog, which is madefortvmayhem.com. And and on madefortvmayhem.com, I'm actually doing a Halloween thing where I'm looking at all the movies that came out in October in the 70s, all the horror movies. So it's a, it's a tribute to Halloween, and I'm doing it in three parts. I just posted part one. Part two is going up a little later. It might already be up when this podcast goes live. So um, I don't want the two to uh, cross each other, but I do want to start updating content. So visit us. I'll try to keep it going. Um, we also have a Facebook page, so just look for TV Mayhem Podcast on Facebook, uh, and you will find us. I have like 12 likes so far, so feel free to come over and like us. You can also find us on Twitter at, at TV Mayhem Podcast, um, and, uh, we have an email. It's TV Mayhem Podcast at gmail.com. 
And those are all the different ways you can visit us and get in touch with us. We'd love to hear uh, anything you want to say about TV movies, your favorite TV movies, your least favorite TV movies, the first movie you ever saw, um, movies you'd like us to talk about, uh, movies you'd like to see, anything like that. We're just really interested. And TV in particular, if there's even other classic TV shows or something you're curious about or want to discuss, we can bring that up in feedback. Um, We're more than happy to do that. Um, So our next episode,